and friendship of the American South in Cliff Yost's beautifully written buddy drama, Malcolm X and JFK. So don't move a muscle. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. What you guys are hearing right now is Robert Johnson, because he features heavily in the script reading today, which is, as I mentioned at the top, Cliff's Yo- Cliff Yost's beautifully written Southern Road movie, Malcolm X and JFK, and we're so excited to bring it to you here on the Unproduced Table Read on the Popcorn Talk Network. For those just tuning in for the first time, this is a show where we read Hollywood's hottest unproduced pilots and features with some of Hollywood's best writers, and we read unproduced scripts in an attempt to get them made. So we're so excited to have you here today, Cliff. Thank you. I'm excited. Yeah. Good, yeah. absolutely. Um, before we introduce Cliff and his script, I would love for the rest of my cast to introduce both of themselves and who they'll be playing today in the read. Sure. What's up, y'all? Uh, I'm Timothy <laughs> Michael. You can find me on all social media platforms at I am Timothy Mike. And today I will be, we will be reading Malcolm and Lionel. How you guys doing? I'm Kareem Stroud on all social medias, Kareem3K, and today I'll be playing Snap Gibson and John Freeman. Hello, everybody, and welcome. My name's Courtney Stewart. You can find me on social media at Stuart Starlet, and I'm reading a whole lot of people. <laughs> uh, Elizabeth, Asia, Mike, you have the list. Um, uh, janitor, Violet, Julie, bartender, and the receptionist. Uh, hey everybody, I'm Andrew Guy. You can find me on social media at Andrew Guy. I'm reading about 10 roles today, but most prominently I'm reading Ray Hoffman and Frank Grayson. Hey everybody, uh, Mike Kalinowski. You can find me at Mike Kalinowski. Today I am <clears throat> store owner, grumpy fisherman, gang leader, grandpa, white man, Agent Miller, <laughs> farmer, sheriff roll, skinhead, trooper, dim cowboy, and Charles. Ciao. Hey guys, Roxy Stryer here. You can find me everywhere at Roxy Stryer, and I'll be reading Wife, Co-Ed, Clerk, Dr. Simpson, Grace, Secretary, and a Girl. Well guys, we're so excited to have Cliff in studio today. Um, Cliff used to direct TV and radio ads, which I'm interested to discuss with you, because I'll, music prom- uh, features so prominently in the script, I wondered if that might have had an influence over kind of your past career, but we'll talk about it in the Q&A. Um, the script reading today that Cliff wrote is called Malcolm X and JFK, and it was actually a nickel top 10% finisher in the year that it placed. Um, we've read some nickel winning features and some nickel featured um, scripts on this show as well, so we're excited to add to our arsenal. Um, I gotta say, when I first saw the title of this script, I expected a historical biopic, and so um, when I first started reading the script, I was like, what is this? This isn't all what I expected, and I ended up loving it maybe even more than I would have if it was what I thought it was going to be, so... I instantly reached out to you and was like, hey, we want to bring you on. And we're so honored to have you here today, Cliff. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Um, before we start the read, I would love for you to give us one to two minutes about kind of your inspirations for this script and the world we're entering before we start the read today. Excellent. When, when I was a child, when I was a boy, my grandfather would take me to Gulfport, Mississippi every summer to his best friend's home. It was right on the Gulf. And there was a foundation with no house. Hmm. So when I was little... I would ask Larry, my, my grandfather's best friend, you know, where's the house? Hmm. And he said, Hurricane Camille took it. Wow. So every summer I would go there and I would stand on that, that platform or that uh, foundation and just wonder what kind of force it would take to take a home. Simultaneously what was going on is I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we didn't have a large black population. So I would be immersed as a white person in a, in a uh, largely black area. And it was the contrast that I, I experienced and that I wanted to um, achieve in Malcolm X and JFK, which is actually where the name come from. When I, when I took those two, I just felt the name really represented the contrast mm-hmm. that I was looking for. Cool. 
Well, I can't wait to discuss that specifically in our Q&A because it's such an interesting specific choice. Yeah. Um, but until we do that, we got to read it. Um, <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, this is um, Cliff Yost's Malcolm X and JFK, and we're so excited to bring it to you here on the Unproduced Table. <laughs> Fade in. Interior plywood shack night. Super. New Orleans, 2006. Post-Katrina, a tin roof shack serves as a house in the Lower Ninth Ward. An old man wheezes off screen. The jaundiced flame of a lantern reveals walls covered with black and white lynching photographs and postcard. Blacks hanged, blacks burned, blacks tarred and feathered. Malcolm Xavier studies each photo, riveted, repulsed. White and 14, Malcolm's clavicles betray hunger as his constant companion. His tender eyes and scar spanning his cheek are veiled by a Florida Marlins baseball cap. Malcolm blinks to comprehend a grisly scene. A finger twisted like black, ric- like black licorice shakes as it points. That there boy, he got him a right to be blue. Photo. A white girl poses in her Sunday best next to a mutilated corpse, and the jubilant girl beams. Reason to celebrate comes easy to some. Malcolm forces black bile with a hard swallow, tears with a fist and a cast. Robert Johnson's crossroads fades up. Interior, Beacon Hill High School, Florida Day. Super, four weeks earlier. Crossroads spins on a suitcase phonograph. On a blackboard, oppression plus expression equals the blues. The sweltering classroom reeks of puberty, perspiration, and poverty. Black, white, and Latino students fidget, daydream, or doodle. Reggie Bernard, 14 and black, plays air plays air guitar lick for lick with, John, with the Johnson recording. Lost an imagined celebrity, Reggie fails to notice Malcolm lava spitwad at him. Malcolm scans his text, each real page covered with a page ripped from Coastal Angler. A leaping tarpon lights Malcolm up. Elizabeth Watson, an overly committed and terminally ill black teacher, holds a Robert Johnson album cover in her arms. With a scarf covering her head, Elizabeth sings and sways. I went down to the crossroad, fell down on my knees. Ask the Lord above, have mercy now. Save poor Rob, if you please. Malcolm stares out a window, seeing the day unfolding. He caresses a rabbit's foot. The bell blares at 10 a.m. Your essays on Malcolm X are due. Malcolm beelines for the door with his text hanging out of his backpack. Elizabeth intercepts Malcolm. Malcolm, your essay. Malcolm shrugs. Examining his textbook, Elizabeth finds the fishing photos. You disrespect Mr. X, you disrespect me, and you disrespect yourself. Staring at his biohazard high tops, Malcolm strokes his rabbit's foot. Elizabeth lifts his chin, forcing him to look at her as, as she removes her scarf. Eventually our luck runs out. Malcolm squirms at the sight of her bald head. I expect more from you, Malcolm. Can we agree that we'll see your very best this summer? Managing a nod, Malcolm bolts for the door. Exterior alley, parking lot day. Jogging down an alley, Malcolm emerges behind a neighborhood grocery. He snakes a fishing pole and tackle from beneath the dumpster, buzzing with flies. Dumpster diving, Malcolm finds a Florida Marlins baseball cap and a loaf of moldy rye. Ravenous, he tears into the bread. Interior, Good Eats Grocery Day. Precisely stocked shelves gleam under bare fluorescent. Hit the road, Jack plays on the radio. Black, 60, wearing a Greek fisherman's cap. The store owner manning the register grins when Malcolm enters wearing the cap. The owner's wife looks up from her stocking long enough to sworn to warn Malcolm with a glare. Strolling the aisles, Malcolm sneaks a can of Spam, then a can of evaporated milk into his backpack. He rides at the counter with a single can of corn. The owner rings up the corn. Fish got something to fear today, son? Malcolm nods, separating lint from change fished from his pocket. The owner notices Malcolm eyeing beef jerky in the jar on the counter. Mm, I know something about fish bait I don't. 
Malcolm shakes his head no. The owner slips a piece of jerky into the bag with the corn. He extends the bag to Malcolm. Malcolm hesitates, then grabs the bag and hightails it out of the store. Uh, for the love of Christ, it's not enough for us to steal us blind. Now you gotta go and give him the whole damn store? Boy's hungry. Boy's what? Trash. Can of meat and some evaporator don't fill one belly, much less two. Ain't our business. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Our business is feeding folk, not judging them. Resuming her stocking, the wife grumbles. Marlin's cap was a present from the kids. Exterior fishing pier day. Old black and white men fish solo and in pairs. Malcolm walks the pier-turned gauntlet, eyes down, ignoring glances and comments. A grumpy fisherman mutters. You gotta be working instead of listening to fish. Separated, Malcolm gets to work. He stuffs his mouth with he stuffs his mouth with jerky, then peels the can of corn open with a pocket knife. Baiting his hook with chew, with chewed jerky and corn, Malcolm casts. The distant plop draws appreciation from some and resentment from others. Malcolm tenses his line. Moments pass, a gentle tug. Malcolm watches his line go taut, then slack, taut, then slack. Closing his eyes, he senses his, his opponent's next move. Bam! A violent strike. Malcolm sets the hook with a perfectly timed yank. The pole arcs as his fish runs. Line whizzes off Malcolm's reel. An excited fisherman sees a snook leap clear of the water. Kid's got Moby on the line. A helpful fisherman stands behind Malcolm with the net. Give him a room, give him that old fish got plenty fight in him. A crowd gathers as Malcolm lands the trophy snook. Don't no damn snook swim these waters, much less bite and jerky. Malcolm eases the hook from the snook's mouth. <laughs> he smiles at the fish, then moves to release it. The fisherman intercedes. Whoa, whoa, ain't you gonna keep it? Ain't mine to keep. Malcolm again attempts to release his catch. Again, he is blocked. Hell! I'll take him if you don't want him! Snook good eating, boy. Put some meat on them bones. Malcolm stands his ground. You beat him fair and square. Old Snook ain't gonna hold it against you none. Malcolm looks at the fish, then at all the men. You catch him, you keep him. Malcolm releases the fish. Dismay trails the fish as it swims away. Exterior, commercial fishing wharf day. A wharf governed by rats and roaches. Dilapidated buildings, submerged trawlers, and scattered crab traps tell of hard times and hurricanes. Carrying his rod, Malcolm cases the area. Satisfied, he stashes his pole under a pile of crab traps, minus his pocket knife. Malcolm pockets his knife. Walking the wharf, Malcolm makes a clicking sound using tongue and teeth. From behind a stack of pallets, Sylvester, a one-eyed tomcat, saunters up and greets Malcolm with a demanding meow. Cat ain't never got your tongue, Sylvester. Malcolm kneels with a piece of jerky for his friend. Sly snatches the jerky, nipping Malcolm's finger. Hungry ain't no sin, but rude's just plain ugly. (laughs) Swallowed by a vocal sly, Malcolm walks the wharf. Interior, abandoned cannery day. Weaving through cannery ruins, Malcolm jimmies his way through a door, only to find himself face-to-face with four white gang members, holding Malcolm's classmate, Reggie, on the ground. Hogtied and gagged, Reggie moans. The gang leader holds a lit Marlboro centimeters from Reggie's arm. Malcolm is hostage to the violence. The gang leader interrogates Malcolm with the Florida Cracker 20. This your nigga ex? Malcolm's silence provokes the gang leader. He abandons Reggie for Malcolm. Sucking his cigarette, the gang leader exhales through a broken tooth, blowing smoke into Malcolm's face. Is this your nigga retard? Malcolm stares into Reggie's terror-filled eyes. Looking away from Reggie, Malcolm shakes his head no. Good answer, X. As the gang leader returns for Reggie, Sly announces his arrival with a contentious meow. The gang leader kicks at the tomcat, missing by an embarrassing margin. His embarrassment flashes to rage. Stalking Sly, the gang leader is confronted by a knife-wielding Malcolm. Hurt Sly, and I'll cut you north to sell. 
Amused by Malcolm's sentimentality, the gang leader picks up a rusted gas can. You telling what you seen today, X? You and your pussy be taking a petrol bath. Meow! The gang leader lights a fresh Marlboro as he returns to Reggie. Time on these African-American who be the real Americans. Malcolm vanishes as the gang leader presses his cigarette into Reggie's arm. Exterior Malcolm's driveway carport day. Malcolm runs the overgrown drive with Sly under his arm. He stashes his Tomcat in a sagging carport that shelters a Uduro dirt bike and pick up more rust than truck. Keep your trap shut or Grant will have you for dinner. Bypassing a wheelchair ramp, Malcolm bounds to the trailer's porch, crashing inside the single wide. Grant! Interior Malcolm's living room continuous. Poverty and squalor coat every surface. A console TV sans picture blasts the news. In a wheelchair before the TV, Grandpa wakes with Malcolm's entrance. 70 and nearly blind with Huntington's disease, Grandpa's hand twitches as he stares blankly at Malcolm. It's me, Grand. Malcolm moves face to face. Studying Malcolm, Grandpa's twitching intensifies. Malcolm? Memory rushes back atop a wave of anger. Oh, you bam. School called and said you're going missing. Grandpa seizes Malcolm's hands, smelling them. Fishing? You been fishing? Twitching uncontrollably, Grandpa wheels to a table covered with prescriptions. A gang's hurting Reggie in the cannery. Grandpa struggles to open a bottle of pills. Little, little nigga done something? Malcolm comes to his grandpa's aid. Reggie ain't never done nothing. Grandpa snatches the bottle from Malcolm, greedily swallowing the pills. Nigga done something, boy. Hope niggas are done something. Grandpa chokes. Malcolm grabs a glass of water and helps him drink. Reggie needs help. Spewing water and venom, Grandpa hits Malcolm with the fly swatter. Goddamn nigga killed your mama. Ain't got no lord in can, boy. Ain't you got no... Grandpa's breath and memory run short. Bracing for round two, Malcolm strokes his rabbit's foot. What you standing there for, boys? I said fetch the mail. Exterior Malcolm's mobile home day. Malcolm trudges to the mailbox. Returning with the mail, he sees Sly perched on the pickup's roof. You ain't the only one who could have sure kept his mouth shut. Malcolm sifts through mail as he walks. Ascending the wheelchair ramp, Malcolm stops to examine an envelope. Fetch you don't mean nothing, boy! Interior Malcolm's living room continuous. Waiting at the screen door, Grandpa confiscates the mail from Malcolm. I heard you nosing. Ain't like you can read. Cut school to fish. Grandpa checks the seal of each letter. Satisfied, he stashes Malcolm's envelope of interest in his shirt pocket. He tosses the balance of the mail on a desk, piled high with unopened mail. If you was any fisherman, we'd be eating mutton snapper instead of canned hog. Interior Malcolm's kitchen night. Spam sizzles in a skillet as Malcolm trims mold from the dumpster rye. Malcolm serves his grandpa, then grabs a sandwich and heads for the door. Don't mess with a sack on that. You got chores! Malcolm flies out the door. Exterior Malcolm's carport night. Searching for Sly, Malcolm clicks to no avail. Sly. Sly. Bummed, he grabs a baseball bat and tosses a ball on the pitched roof. He waits for the pitch and then slams the ball into the beat-up pickup. Exterior Jimmy Blue Shoes parking lot, Alabama, night. Once a dangerous hideaway for runaway slaves, now a trendy blues club. The sound of blues and the odor of pheromones mingle in the parking lot. Striding to the club's entrance with a lethal satchel slung over his sh- with a leather satchel slung over his shoulder, John Freeman Kennedy, black in late thirties, arrives with confidence bordering on arrogance and a presence reserved for power brokers. John draws attention like Miami draws plastic surgeons. John smiles at the iron-jawed, bicepted doorman. Jimmy B thought <clears throat> Jimmy B thought you was a no-show. Brother, I am the show. <laughs> in spite of himself, the doorman grins. <laughs> Allowing John to ease past the line of waiting patrons and enter the smoky hideout. Interior Jimmy Blue's shoes stage. Jimmy Blue's shoes stage night. John belts Manish Boy by Muddy Waters to the standing room only crowd. 
I am a man. I am a full-grown man. I am a man. I am a natural-born lover man. I am a man. I am a rolling stone. I am a man. I'm a hoochie-coochie, man. <laughs> the ecstatic crowd grinds. Cupping his harmonica to his lips, John unleashes an aching cry. Sweat glistens on his face. Jimmy Blue Shoes Hawthorne, the black, the black club owner with a taste for double-breasted suits and Cuban cigars, admires John's command of the crowd. Jimmy signals for a cocktail waitress. Whispering into her ear, Jimmy writes on a crisp $100 bill. He lays the bill on her tray. The waitress weaves her way to the stage, delivering the hundred to John. Reading the bill, John grins. It seems that John, Robert Johnson's fan robbed his piggy bank. Jimmy blows please rings of smoke as John calls home, as John calls Sweet Home Chicago. The crowd cheers as the band launches into the song. Interior Jimmy Blue's shoes office night. Smoking a Cohiba, Jimmy counts the mountains of cash on his desk. <clears throat> a knock precedes John's entry. John smiles seeing the pile of bills and Jimmy's. A 45 long colt pointed at him. Good thing I'm not a black man. <laughs> Jimmy motions John in. Placing ten $100 bills in an envelope, Jimmy removes the Cohiba from his humidor. He hands the cigar and the cash to John. Buy yourself an automobile, Johnny boy. <clears throat> Be on time next month. John returns the envelope. It's too much. Jimmy presses the envelope into John's hand. It's not enough. Seeing what that bitch Katrina did took from you. Jimmy's determination exceeds his grip strength. Grateful, John smells the Cohiba. There are cigars, Jimmy B, and there are cigars. John opens the door to leave. Be safe out there, Johnny boy. John closes the door behind him. Alone, Jimmy blows smoke over his cash. Exterior Highway 31 South, Alabama, night. John walks the highway beneath the sky, more stars than not. Approaching from behind, the headlights of a late model sedan with windows tinted black. The sedan slows, pulls over. A white man peers out the dimly lit car. It's a little late to be walking. John leans in the passenger window. The red glow of the dashboard illuminates the man's driving gloves. Dark turtleneck, beads of sweat on his forehead. The men's eyes meet. I'm offering you a ride. John glances up at the sky. It'd be a sin to pass on this show. As the sedan pulls away... Another time, Sambo! Red taillights burn like demon's eyes. John abandons the road, hopping a fence for a cotton field. Exterior cotton field, Alabama night. John lies on his coat with his head on his satchel. Smoking his cohiba, he peers into the envelope with the ten hundred dollar bills. He stashes six of the bills in his boot. John admires the stars. Exterior Gulf of Mexico, Florida, day. Fishing boats troll golf waters dyed red by the sunrise. Interior, Malcolm's bedroom, kitchen, day. Filthy windows pass, filthy light. Walking, Malcolm tugs at his underwear as he plods into the kitchen. Kitchen, pouring lucky charms into Pyrex. Malcolm frosts the cereal with just as much sugar. He douses the mound with equal parts evaporated milk and tap water, stirs the sugary gruel, and digs in. Gran. Silence. Gran, you want charms? Interior, Grandpa's bedroom, day. Malcolm shovels cereal into his mouth as he enters to rancid air and light. Malcolm sniffs his armpit. Mm, that you or me? Grandpa sits upright in bed. Fully clothed, he stares at Malcolm. You want charms? Grandpa remains motionless. Malcolm's chewing slows as he steps to the foot of the bed and pokes Grandpa's bare foot. Stiff and cold. Dropping his bowl to the floor, Malcolm backs away, his eyes on the envelope in Grandpa's pocket. Interior of Malcolm's bedroom, day. Malcolm throws on clothes, grabs his rabbit's foot, bolts from the trailer. Interior, Freedom High School classroom, day. The usual cast, minus Reggie. His seat is empty. Malcolm slumps in his chair, his eyes hidden under his Marlin's cap. Walking the classroom, Elizabeth's voice cracks with emotion as she reads an essay. I am against every form of racism and segregation, every form of discrimination. I believe in human beings and that all human beings should be respected as such, regardless of their color. Elizabeth pauses at Reggie's empty seat. 
Reggie used this quote by Malcolm X in his essay. Overcome, Elizabeth sinks into Reggie's chair. Malcolm steals a glance of Elizabeth as she struggles for composure. A knock on the door. Answering the door, Elizabeth reads a note from a student in the hallway. Elizabeth looks at Malcolm. Interior principal's office day. An office made by a small desk high with... Uh, an office made small by a desk piled high with responsibility and a man with shoulders built for the load. Malcolm sits opposite Freedom's principal, Frank Grayson. Black, unyielding, yet compassionate, Grayson radiates his outrage with a downturned mouth. Grayson drinks from a glass, staring at an 8x10 photos. Holding his rabbit's foot, Malcolm sinks lower into his seat. Monitoring Malcolm from behind, Special Agent Miller wears a 38 in a shoulder holster beneath his Hugo Boss suit. Miller's crew cut FBI badge and silence bespeak his authority. Grayson spreads the photos in front of Malcolm. I ain't done nothing. Photos. Reggie, arms with bruises, and cuts with the letter N branded into his arm. We know you were there, Malcolm. Malcolm vehemently shakes his head. This is Reggie. Malcolm squeezes his rabbit's foot. Breaking his silence, Agent Miller speaks with a potent Boston accent. Make no mistake, young man, this is a federal hate crime, and that's why I'm here. Now, either you're a witness or you're an accessory. The difference is my point of view in about 20 years. Malcolm hunkers down. Those boys almost killed Reggie, Malcolm. Grayson leaves the photo of the letter N branded into Reggie's arm for Malcolm to ponder. Now, you live with this while we call your grandfather. Grayson and Agent Miller step outside. Staring at Reggie, Malcolm's disbelief turns to desperation. He surveys the office for an escape. No windows, a single door. Hearing the men returning, Malcolm takes Grayson's water glass and pours it over his crotch. He replaces the glass just as Grayson and Miller enter. Your grandfather didn't answer. Grayson stops mid-sentence, seeing Malcolm's soiled pants. Malcolm slumps in shame. Christ. Grayson yells to his secretary outside his office. Miller, a little help in here? Agent Miller offers his handkerchief. Interior Freedom High School restroom day. Malcolm stands under a partially opened window. Malcolm, you dressed? Uh, um, I'm in my skivvies. Using a janitor's mop, Malcolm pries the window open. He shimmies through the window and disappears. Exterior, Malcolm's mobile home day. Malcolm clears the ramp and tears through a screen door. Interior, living room continuous. Gasping for air, Malcolm glances at the pile of mail next to a phone on the desk. Interior, grandpa's bedroom day. Malcolm inches towards his dead grandfather. Looking away, he slides the envelope from grandpa's shirt pocket. Malcolm reads the envelope. Envelope, addressee, Scarlet Xavier. Return address, Hamilton and Hamilton, LLP. 666 Wilshire Boulevard, Beverly Hills, California, 90210. Opening the envelope, Malcolm finds a check. Check. Payable to Scarlett Xavier, $400. Memo. Child support. The phone rings. Startled, Malcolm shoves the check in the envelope and runs to the living room. Living room continuous. Malcolm touches the ringing phone. Instead, he pulls a road atlas from under the ignored pile of mail. He opens to California, then L.A., searching. The phone stops, then rings again. Jolted to action, Malcolm shoves the road atlas in the envelope and check into his backpack. Interior kitchen day. Malcolm dumps deviled ham, a sleeve of saltines, and an apple into his backpack. Adding a coffee tin of change, he hears a siren. Malcolm sprints outdoors. Exterior driveway day. Malcolm jumps on his dirt bike, furiously stomping the Kickstarter, and panic sets in. As the bike refuses to start and the siren nears. Plunging a stick into the gas tank, it comes out dry. Shit. Malcolm grabs a gas can, spilling fuel in his frantic effort to fill the tank. The siren's arrival is imminent. Malcolm pushes the bike out of the carport and down the driveway. Gaining speed, he hops on and pops the clutch. The motorcycle sputters to life seconds before the siren arrives. Malcolm guns the bike across the road through an adjacent lot, avoiding the road, and only dust remains as Agent Miller and Grayson skid to a stop in Malcolm's drive. 
Jumping from the car, they storm the mobile home. Interior mobile home continuous. Searching the single wide, Miller and Grayson are assaulted by two things. Poverty's filthy finger... Poverty's filthy fingerprints. Christ almighty. And the stench of Grandpa's corpse. Young Xavier... Young Mr. Xavier just lost a paddle in shit creek. Grayson covers his mouth and his nose. Interior Lexus SUV, Alabama Highway 90, day. John rides in the back seat as an Alabama co-ed drives with Alicia Keys' A Woman's Worth, blasting at concert volume. White and 20, the co-ed prattles on as she pets her Doberman, <laughs> Tina. Riding shotgun, Tina mad dogs John unapologetically. I don't know how you do it every night. I mean, it's not like you're really blue or anything. I mean, we all get bummed once in a while, but that's not the same feeling like, like wanting to split your wrists or chucking a bottle of Xanax. Right, Tina? Worlds away, John leaves through a small notebook filled with entries, dates, check numbers, 400 as the recurring amount. The co-ed cranks the volume higher. Now this sister's got the blues for real. I mean, whenever she's going through it, it's gotta be serious. How else could she sing like this? Hey, wouldn't it be great if Alicia called one day and asked you to join her band? John turns to the end of the notebook where space for a final entry remains. You never know, maybe one day she'll need a backup singer, a harmonica player, or some not hot new song, yeah. Passing a highway sign, Irving t- Irvington, two miles. Glancing at John in her rear view, the co-ed signals and pulls over to the shoulder. John stows his notebook in his satchel. I, I better let you out here. John exits with his satchel. Thank you. The co-ed yeah. rolls the passenger window, keeping pace with John as he walks. I mean it. You keep practicing, and one day Alicia's going to call. Hope your phone's turned on. <laughs> Exterior Irvington outskirts Alabama Day. John walks Highway 90 into a small southern town. Exterior Irvington Main Street Day. A tidy street dissecting downtown. John passes two women in their 30s as he, hears the jug and, as he enters the Jug and Loaf convenience store. The women expertly double-take. Interior Jug and Loaf Day. Ego fully inflated, John grabs a quart of apple juice. Peanuts? Eager to oblige, the dreadlocked female clerk squeezes out from behind the register, guiding John to the nut display. We got your Spanish roasted no salt. My opinion, the no salt is just shy of cardboard. Chortling, the clerk maneuvers past John to her post. Grabbing peanuts and a newspaper, John lays his items on the counter. You sell money orders. Dixie's finest, Confederate Union. John grins as he removes four $100 bills from the envelope. Accepting the bills, the clerk counts aloud. One, two, three, four. Four Franklins, present and accounted for. The clerk processes the money order as John addresses the envelope. Envelope. Asia Kennedy, 712 Calle de Amor, El Paso, Texas, 76211. Hey. Asia Kennedy. Asia Kennedy. Exotic and regal. Amount, four Franklins. Memo. Damn nosy if you ask me. Chow support. Pleased. John records the payment in the final page space of his notebook. As the clerk prints the money order, You're a straighter arrow than my ex. Deadbeat hasn't sent a nickel in ten. Hasn't seen his own blood in fifty. <laughs> John's pleasure evaporates. The clerk hands him the money order along with the goods. Handing the clerk a twenty, John is quick to exit. You got change coming. Keep it. Exterior, Irvington Main Street Day. John contemplates his support check before sealing it in the addressed envelope. Crossing the street, John holds... John holds up for a redneck driving a redneck pickup to pass. Slowing, the redneck issues John a what-the-fuck-you-looking-at look. John walks into a post office, pulling up short of entering. Instead, he pulls change from his pocket to feed a payphone. He dials, waits as it rings. Hello? John freezes, hearing Asia's gentle voice. Hello? John cradles the receiver. Stowing the envelope in his satchel, John walks past the post office. 
Exterior Country Road, Florida. Malcolm flies down the dirt road of his motorcycle, leaving dust and alfalfa bales in his wake. Flanking a pasture rolling in Bermuda green, Malcolm sees an Appaloosa running with her yearning. Malcolm pulls over. Exterior pasture day. Straddling a fence, Malcolm watches the mare and colt run and play. He removes the apple from his pack to entice them. The mare snorts her wariness as she approaches. Come on. Come on, I ain't gonna hurt you. Malcolm quarters the apple with his pocket knife. The Appaloosa accepts his offering, then his hand. The, the yearling noise is in. <laughs> Running will make you hungry. Tears stream down Malcolm's face as he lavishes the Marin colt with affection. Exterior Country Road 114, Alabama Day. A desolate farm road flanked by cotton fields. Malcolm opens the throttle to accelerate. The, mo- the motorcycle sputters and dies. Coasting to a stop, he repeatedly kickstarts the bike. Come on. Removing the gas cap and putting his ear to the tank, Malcolm leans the bike left to right. Oh, shit. Malcolm scans the field for options. Sighting a cotton harvester at half a mile, he pushes his bike under an attentive Alabama sun. Exterior cotton field day. Bathed in sweat, Malcolm reaches the harvester. He plops down in the tractor shadow, digging deviled ham and saltines from his backpack. Malcolm inhales the food. Exterior cotton field day. As Malcolm sleeps under the tractor, a white farmer toes Malcolm's leg with a pointy boot. The tobacco-spitting farmer toes hard the second time. Malcolm jumps to his feet in pain. Feeling at home, boy? The farmer spits on Malcolm's lunch remnants. Malcolm collects his trash. I wasn't living, mister. I run out of gas. Must have fell asleep. You ever know gas to grow in a cornfield? The, the farmer surveys Malcolm, then the motorcycle. How much of that thing a hold? Gallon, maybe? Gallon will run you two and a quarter. Two fifty. Malcolm retrieves a handful of pennies and nickels from his backpack. The farmer spits near Malcolm's feet. Feet for working or walking? Exterior cotton field day. Malcolm walks behind the harvester, gathering Miss Cotton. From the air-conditioned cab, the farmer motions Malcolm to step it up. Get your lazy butt out here, old man. Exterior cotton field day. Filthy and exhausted, Malcolm siphons gas from the farmer's pickup into his dirt bike. Malcolm spits a mouthful of gas. Spread it tastes like it smells. Malcolm casts both gas tanks as the farmer tosses the siphon hose into the truck bed. Malcolm loiters as the farmer starts his truck. If you can't say it, worth ain't saying. I worked three hours, mister. Negroes worked a lifetime, didn't earn no favor. Spitting, the farmer points to the rain clouds on the horizon. I didn't take you to raise. If you got somewhere to be, this get you there. The farmer drives away. Furious, Malcolm dumps his lunch trash on the ground. Kickstarting the bike, he peels out. <laughs> Exterior Highway 90, Alabama Day. Malcolm passes the sign, Irvington, two miles. Exterior Irvington, Main Street. Malcolm pulls up to a jug and loaf as a prison transport rolls through town. Gawking through expanded metal, an inmate ogles Malcolm with the obscenity and the tongue slurping of his lips. Malcolm ducks into the store. Interior jug and loaf continuous. Bypassing the dreadlocked clerk as she rings up a customer, Malcolm cruises the aisles. Casing the cookie section, he unzips his backpack. Just as Malcolm eases a bag of Fig Newtons into his backpack, the clerk chortles and declares... If you're into living dangerously, hon, we got Apple Newton. <laughs> Malcolm spins to face the clerk standing behind him. Ain't no easy decision. Figs versus apples, whole grain versus no grain. Sometimes I say to heck with it and to go with some good old-fashioned Oreos. The, cl- <laughs> the clerk's chortle turns into raucous laughter as she returns to her register. Malcolm swaps the Newtons for Oreos. The clerk rings Malcolm up as he scours for change in his backpack. One Washington and 52 Lincolns. Malcolm counts nickels and pennies. Sensitive to his plight, the clerk takes a dollar bill from her smock. Got me a nice tip today. She adds her dollar to Malcolm's change. Good luck gets its good from being shared. Embarrassed, Malcolm pulls the child support check from his pack. 
I got money. I can help you with this. Not useless Scarlet, your mother, and she's with you. Well, who'd you think sent me? You could try the bank, but we're all hanging from the same rope. Malcolm stuffs the check into his pack. <laughs> what good's it if it won't feed you, huh? Malcolm storms out with the Oreos. And your Oreos! Exterior, highway rest stop, Alabama night. Darkness, lightning, thunder. Rifling through garbage barrels, Malcolm finds a weak, past ripe banana. He hazards a bite. Gagging on his knees, Malcolm nearly gets clipped by a Volkswagen Beetle as it screeches to a halt. A white woman loses her shoe running for the restroom. Retrieving, retrieving her shoe, Malcolm snickers until an Alabama state trooper pulls to a stop. Eyeing Malcolm, the female straight state trooper rolls down her window. Malcolm shields his eyes as the state trooper lights him with a tactical flashlight. You lose your way, son? No, ma'am. Unconvinced, the state trooper exits her car. My mama's bad with the trots. <laughs> Lost her shoe making the john. The state trooper withdraws as rain begins to fall. I'll tell your mother to slow down and keep some Pepto in the car. The trooper rolls up the window, rolling away. Alone in the deluge, in the deluge, Malcolm hijacks a garbage bag from a trash barrel, cutting holes for his head and his arms. Donning the impromptu poncho, Malcolm climbs on his motorcycle and disappears. Exterior Mississippi Highway night. By darkness and drizzle, John works under the hood of a paneled station wagon on the highway shoulder. An elderly black couple sits in the car. Adjusting the carburetor, John motions the man to turn the engine over. The station wagon resists, then starts. The old man gives John two thumbs up as he revs the engine. John closes the hood, grabs a satchel, and reaches for the rear door. It's locked. The couple refuses to look at John as they pull away. Always a pleasure. Checking the highway for prospects, John sees a single headlight. He holds out his thumb. Malcolm flies by in a flapping garbage bag. Shaking his head, John walks on. Exterior Mississippi Highway night. Malcolm's motorcycle sprays a rain rooster tail as he passes a highway sign. Sign! Moss Point, 10 miles. As his bike sputters and dies, Malcolm coasts to a stop. Shit! He opens the fuel tank, replacing the cap without bothering to check the gas. Stuck in the downpour, Malcolm slumps over the handlebars. Interior pickup truck, Mississippi Highway night. John rides passenger in the crew cab of a dually diesel more penthouse than workhouse. Dressed head to toe in a black Stetson, the 60s-ish black driver hums in perfect tune to Robert Johnson's Ramblin' on My Mind. A bucket of fried chicken sits between them as John removes a harmonica from his satchel. Man shouldn't start what a man can't finish. John establishes his virtuosity holding a single note. The driver tips the Stetson in respect and then abruptly kills the radio. Out of place in the darkness and rain, a silhouette materializes ahead on the highway shoulder. The driver brings the pickup alongside Malcolm as Malcolm pushes his bike. John rolls down the passenger window. I'm guessing your steed left you high but not so dry. Exterior Mississippi Highway continuous. Stopping, Malcolm eyes the two men. This rig's got plenty of room for your bike. Squeeze your hide in here, too, if you don't mind. The smell of the colonel. <laughs> Malcolm stares at the chicken, then walks on. The driver looks at John, then back at Malcolm. Pride a man can tame. Hates a different animal. Head down, Malcolm pushes on. Man makes up... Oh. Man makes up his own mind. Interior pickup truck continuous. <laughs> the driver pulls onto the highway as John rolls up the window. A brief silence. This is my stuff. The driver shoots John a questioning look before pulling over. I'm doing the straight through to Houston. New Orleans ain't but a hiccup. John shakes the man's hand. Another time, but thank you. The driver John. hands John the bucket of chicken. No point in being wet and hungry. John exits the truck with the chicken and his satchel. Exterior Mississippi Highway, continuous. The driver rolls down the passenger window. Uh, son, that boy back there, he's a, there's a reason he's not at home. Tucked in a warm bed. John nods appreciatively. As the truck lights blur, John jogs 20 yards to a railroad overpass. Exterior railroad overpass, night. 
Waiting, John takes shelter. Malcolm arrives to John, holding out a chicken thigh as his offering. It's not my mama's, but it's not bad. <laughs> Malcolm resists the bait. Dark meat's always been my favorite. Overcome, Malcolm drops his bike. Grabbing a leg from the bucket, he strips it clean. Exterior railroad overpass night. John reclines against his satchel as Malcolm picks the chicken bucket clean. A pile of bones sits next to Malcolm. You best dispose of those unless you fancy sleeping with rats. I ain't sleeping with no rats. Malcolm kicks the bones and climbs on the motorcycle. John watches as Malcolm kickstarts the bike until he runs short of breath. It'll be there come morning. Malcolm haphazardly checks the engine. He kicks the bike in frustration. That ought to do it. Angry, Malcolm collects the chicken bones and tosses them in a ditch. Malcolm spreads out his plastic poncho and he curls up. My name's John Freeman Kennedy, in case you're curious. Malcolm refuses to reciprocate. I'd sleep better knowing we'd been properly introduced. Malcolm. Would Malcolm be your first or last name? Malcolm Xavier. John bursts out laughing. <laughs> Malcolm X and JFK. Malcolm turns his back as John savors the irony. Good night, brother Malcolm. <laughs> Malcolm fumes as the rain falls. Exterior railroad overpass night. John sleeps next to his satchel. Malcolm feigns sleep as he listens to John's steady breathing. Inching towards John's satchel, Malcolm reaches inside. Wham! John seizes Malcolm's wrist, pinning him to the ground. You don't steal from a man, not when your belly's full of his chicken. <laughs> John releases Malcolm. Indignant, Malcolm pulls out the pocket knife. You have no cause to use that. No one wants to hurt you. Malcolm's hand shakes. Put it away, and we'll call it a night. Withdrawing his knife, Malcolm returns to his plastic bed. John relocates his satchel, then closes his eyes. Malcolm glares at John. Exterior railroad overpass sunrise. John shoulders his satchel as Malcolm snores with his rabbit's foot in hand. Departing, John looks at Malcolm and sees the rabbit's foot. Setting his satchel down, John checks the bike's fuel pet cook and spark plug. Malcolm jumps to his feet when John tries to kickstart the bike. Fix it, not steal it. John continues his diagnostics beneath Malcolm's disparaging watch. It ain't gonna start. How far west you headed, Malcolm? All the way. <laughs> I'll make you a deal. All the way, I fix your bike, you give me a ride home. Where's home? New Orleans. Malcolm scoffs. <laughs> Man makes up his own mind. Satchel in hand, John heads for the highway. Malcolm's desperation increases with each step that John takes. I ain't got no money for gas. Reaching the shoulder, John pulls a $100 bill from his pocket. Malcolm stews as a car approaches. That don't mean you're driving. <laughs> Man with a plan, and Uncle Sam. The car pulls over. That don't mean we're talking neither. John waves the driver off. Exterior Mississippi Highway Day. Malcolm rides passenger with John's satchel separating the two. Malcolm's scowl is eclipsed only by John's grin. Exterior gas station Mississippi Day. A single pump station in a single pump town. Pulling in, John kills the engine but leaves the key. He dismounts, holding out a $5 bill. Pumping, paying, and praying. Seeing the key in the ignition, Malcolm grabs the gas nozzle. You want anything? I said we ain't talking. As John enters the station, Malcolm rushes to fill the tank. Seeing John paying the attendant, Malcolm turns the key and kickstarts the bike. The bike refuses to start. Malcolm aborts his escape as John returns. I figured she'd be running by now. John turns the fuel pet cock on. The bike starts with a single kick. Furious, Malcolm climbs aboard. Let's get ourselves some fuel. Exterior hamburger stand, Mississippi Day. Malcolm and John eat in silence, seated at a graffiti-covered picnic table. Wearing his backpack, Malcolm alternates monstrous bites of a cheeseburger with fries, chased by ketchup packets squeezed between his teeth. John marvels. As Malcolm finishes his cheeseburger, Room for another. Malcolm answers with a sullen nod. John hands him a $10 bill. 
Make it two. Malcolm crumples the bill and heads for the order window. Bypassing the window, Malcolm sprints for his dirt bike. Turning both the key and fuel petcock on, he stomps the starter and the bike screams to life. John hears the bike and runs to Malcolm as Malcolm burns rubber out the parking lot. Hey! John chases Malcolm into the street. Taking a corner at max speed, Malcolm hits a patch of gravel and loses control. Malcolm! Malcolm and the bike tumble and skid across the asphalt, landing in a ditch. Jumping into the ditch, John finds Malcolm face down in the mud, pinned pinned beneath mangled steel and rubber. Heaving the bike off Malcolm, John clears the mud from his mouth. A female motorist rushes to assist. She freezes, seeing the violent scene. Call an ambulance. She hesitates. Call 911. She dials as John cradles Malcolm's head. Interior, hospital room, Biloxi, Mississippi, day. Bruised, bandaged, and sedated, Malcolm sleeps with the cast on his left wrist. Wearing a straw fedora atop his white head, Sheriff Samuel Roll chews the stub of an unlit cigar as he inspects Malcolm. Roll's stature and draw are pure Mississippi. Young buck damn near lost his hide. With concern exceeded only by experience, Dr. Shirley Simpson ignores Roll as she updates Malcolm's chart. Opposite in race and manner, Simpson and Roll maneuver for access to Malcolm. Roll zeroes in on Malcolm's scarred cheek. What's in his first scrape, Doc? Reading the chart, Simpson patiently reports. Fractured wrist, concussion, rest are cuts and abrasions, minus the malnutrition, everything's consistent with an accident. Accident or not, I'm gonna need to ask the boy a question or two. You're welcome to ask, but you won't get any answers until morning. Roll takes Malcolm's chart from Simpson's hand. Annoyed, she plucks this cigar from Roll's mouth and tosses it in the garbage. It's not going anywhere, Samuel. Malcolm X here's gonna cost the country a pretty penny. Don't you have a wife to feed? On his way to the door, Roll pecks Simpson on the cheek. I made meatloaf, Shelf. <laughs> Simpson softens with his sincerity. I'll be home by seven. <laughs> Roll departs a happy man. Interior hospital waiting room day. John passes time reading Southern Living Magazine. Entering Sheriff Roll's interrogation of John... Entering, Sheriff Roll's interrogation of John begins with a head-to-toe appraisal. Mr. Kennedy, I'd be obliged if you'd remain in the vicinity until young Malcolm wakes up or, and uh, collaborates your version of the account of the accident. John nods more in acknowledgement than consent. You understand this is a friendly request? Roll notes the Southern Living in John's hand. Excellent publication. <laughs> Try to sweep potato casserole, page 54. Delicious. <laughs> Departing, the sheriff pauses with his back to John. It's a bit unusual. Black man like yourself on a road with a white boy. Modern day hookaberry friend, one could argue. Except things don't work out so well for old Jim. John holds fast beneath Sheriff Roll's probing gaze. If there's some light you'd like to shine on this tail before sunrise. John volunteers nothing. Yeah, makes no difference. Your boy's gonna tell a side of the story come morning. Have yourself a restful evening, Mr. Kennedy. The sheriff tips his straw the sheriff tips his straffadora and exits. Interior hospital waiting room night. John methodically cleanses his harmonica. Looking up, he sees the nurse enter a patient's room. John slips into Malcolm's room. Interior hospital room continuous. John washes John watches Malcolm's chest rise and fall. Beside John touches Malcolm's fingers protruding from his cast. As John turns to leave, where's my motorcycle? DOA. <laughs> Malcolm winces pain over disappointment. How you feel? I ain't. Malcolm sees the cast on his broken wrist. Shit. John pulls a chair up next to Malcolm. You ain't gotta be here. The sheriff uh, wants your side of the story before I can leave. Malcolm withdraws at John's mention of the sheriff. He knows you're running. I ain't done nothing. That's enough for me, but the sheriff needs to hear the truth about your accident. Is that sheriff here? He will be when he finds out you're awake. Malcolm grimaces, struggling upright. Is he white? 
John is unsure of the question. The sheriff, is he white? Would it matter? Get me out of here. Malcolm nearly passes out as he stands. John returns him to the bed. Get me out of here right now, or I'll tell that sheriff you done things to me, that I was trying to ditch you. Incredulous, John studies Malcolm's face. This isn't a game, Malcolm. We're in Mississippi. That's right. And that sheriff will believe me. He'll believe everywhere to tell him. John's expression turns grave. What the hell are you running? Get me to Los Angeles and you're the one going to be running. Interior hospital waiting room night. John punches buttons on the waiting room phone and it rings. Ray, it's John. I know it's late, but I'm in trouble. I'll ride to the hospital in Velox. Toss the mattress in your truck and pull around back now. Hanging up, John looks at his watch. Interior hospital room night. Grabbing Malcolm's backpack, John positions himself to lift up Malcolm. Whatever's in L.A., I hope it's worth it. Yeah, you're gonna hurt. I ain't no... John covers Malcolm's mouth as he lifts him. Malcolm's muted scream stops as he goes dishrag limp in John's arms. Interior hospital cor- corridor night. Carrying Malcolm, John avoids hospital personnel as he navigates a series of corridors. John ducks an approaching nurse, ducking into the women's restroom. Interior, hospital, restroom continuous. John maneuvers into a stall, closing the door. Hearing the nurse enter the restroom and take an adjacent stall, John eases out of the stall and exits. Interior corridor, night continuous. Transitioning, transisting a utility corner, John is spotted by a janitor. Something I can help you with? John flees, bypassing an elevator in favor of a stairwell. Interior hospital stairwell continuous. Holding Malcolm tightly, John bounds down the stairs until he reaches a door marked Emergency Exit Only Alarm Will Sound. I need you, Ray. John kicks the door open. An alarm trails John and Malcolm as they run towards waiting headlights. Interior Hoffman guest bedroom, Latimer, Mississippi, day. A well-kept home with photos chronicling a family of three. Malcolm walks into Violet Hoffman stacking blocks on the floor. Age 8, autistic with cocoa skin, Violet constructs columns using a single color for each column, red, white, or blue. Violet whispers to herself as she works. Malcolm is fascinated by her. What's your name? Ignoring Malcolm, Violet trues each column with a mason's precision. Where am I? Malcolm grows impatient for a response. Hi! You got wax in the mirrors? (laughs) Ray Hoffman enters to Malcolm's rudeness. Black and late 30s, Ray carries a Smith & Wesson 44 on his hip and and self-righteousness on his shoulders. Come on, baby. Ray escorts violets from the room, then returns. My name is Mr. Hoffman. You're a guest in my house. Speak like that to my daughter again, and this will no longer be true. Malcolm curses under his breath as Ray exits. Exterior Hoffman backyard porch day. A flower and vegetable garden awash in color. Smoking, smoking, Ray leans against a pickup bearing his company name and logo. Hoffman gunsmithing. A rifle hangs inside the pickup. Ray overhears a phone conversation John is having on the porch. I understand, Mr. Grayson. No, an acquaintance, you two? Ray joins John on the porch as John hangs up. Boys running? John nods. From? Same thing we all running from. <laughs> Wetting his... Wetting his fingers, Ray snubs out his cigarette. There's a reason his kin haven't shown yet. None to show. His mom died in a car accident. Principal says he's got no family. Other than his grandfather, old man died two days ago. Ray conceals his cigarette butt as Violet skips to the porch. Removing a rifle casing from a bucket, Violet blows a one-note tune with the casing. Ray caresses Violet's head. She moves beyond reach. Ray veils his pain with pride. Child never pulls a punch. I'm thinking of visiting my own child as long as I'm headed west. El Paso's quite the drive for a brother and a white boy. On foot. Seems pulling the punches is an art. You've yet to master, brother. The tension is interrupted by Ray's wife. Grace Hoffman enters the porch. Age 30, with skin features that pass for black or white, Grace's kindness is contrasted by green eyes that flash fierce when angered. Grace carries a tray with a washcloth, gauze, medication, orange juice, grits, and an 
origami crab. She speaks with a southern lilt, clear in purpose. I have to change this dressing. John nods. I want Violet out here. Ray nods. Grace strokes Violet's head. Beautiful baby. Violet beams. Looking at Ray, Grace's green eyes reaffirm her instructions. Uh, I've got it, Grace. As Grace enters the house, Ray pulls a photo from his wallet and hands it to John. Lionel stopped being a child years ago. And that white boy in there, he don't want no black daddy. John stares at the photo of a 17-year-old with an uncanny resemblance to John. Interior Hoffman guest bedroom day. A tap on the door precedes Grace's entry with her tray. Her manner calls Malcolm. You must be Malcolm. I hope I didn't wake you. Malcolm struggles to sit up. Grace eases a pillow behind his back, then Malcolm's hand. Then shakes Malcolm's hand. That's better. I'm Grace. Malcolm is intrigued by the origami crab on her tray. I understand you've been feeling a little crabby. <laughs> uh, Malcolm nods his head. Now you have some company. Grace, situa- Grace situates herself on the bed next to Malcolm. I made your grit special with maple syrup. You do like maple syrup. Malcolm nods emphatically. Grace holds the bowl up as Malcolm loads a spoon to capacity. Bending his bandaged arm, he's overcome with pain. Let me. Taking the spoon, Grace feeds Malcolm. Embarrassed, he stares at Violet's blocks. Violet's particular about her blocks. She don't talk? When she has something to say, you'll know. Grace wipes Malcolm's mouth, then removes pills from a bottle. Take these for the pain. Grace places the pills in his mouth, then assists him with orange juice. Malcolm, I have to change your dressings. It's gonna hurt. Malcolm nods. Let's roll you on your side. Grace removes Malcolm's blanket, then lifts his hospital gown. Malcolm pulls his gown down. I won't look. Lifting the gown, Malcolm removes the bloodied gauze coverings, covering Malcolm's hip and butt. Malcolm squeezes his rabbit's foot. Squeeze it tight. Grace reaches for Malcolm with the washcloth. His eyes plead with her to stop. Don't look, love. Exterior Hoffman porch continuous. Hearing Malcolm scream, Violet races for the door. Ray restrains his daughter. Violet's screams join with Malcolm's. Interior Sheriff's Office Day. Sheriff rolls cigars. Sheriff rolls a cigar, bears the brunt of his anger as Agent Miller scans a report. Help me understand, Sheriff. How a malnourished boy with a concussion or broken arm won't start your hospital under your watch. <laughs> well, there's one way to put it. Kidnapped is another. Miller drops the report on Roll's desk. Kidnapped or not, Malcolm Xavier's a fugitive. You lost my fugitive you lost my fugitive in your backyard, Sheriff. Perhaps you could poke your head into a waffle house or two and locate him. Roll's fuck you smile is sweet tea sticky. <laughs> Interior Hoffman kitchen night. Doves coo in a wicker cage. Wearing a tailored floral apron, Grace hums as she frosts a chocolate cake. Sneaking her finger into the frosting, Violet broadcasts her joy with a chocolatey grin. I see you, Violet Hoffman. <laughs> Entering, John circles the cake. Go ahead. John coats his finger, then sucks it clean. Damn, Grace. Grace chides John with a look. Grace serves Violet's cake, then gives John a piece for Malcolm. This is for Malcolm. You get yours after you make peace with the boy. Grace sends John off with a kiss on the cheek. Interior Hoffman guest bedroom night. John knocks, entering uh, entering cake first. A room service. Malcolm feigns disinterest when John appears. Grace makes the best chocolate flake in Ole Miss. John places the cake next to Malcolm. Malcolm distracts himself with the origami crab. I talked to your principal. He told me about your mother. I'm sorry. Grace don't know shit from Sonola. He knows he ain't worried about you. You tell him where I was? I should have. I still may. Do it and I'll call that sheriff. If you want to make make it to Los Angeles, Malcolm, you will have to give me a reason. Getting nothing, John takes a bite of Malcolm's cake. John's second bite pierces Malcolm's disinterest. My grand died. 
Malcolm reaches for the cake. John withholds it, serving outrage instead. Did you burn that boy in Florida? Is that why you're running? Why are you blackmailing me? I ain't done nothing. I swear I ain't. I never touched Reggie, never. Then why did you run? Stroking his rabbit's foot, Malcolm's vulnerability surfaces. My daddy's in California. Mr. Grayson said you didn't have a daddy. Then Grayson's stupider than he looks. We all got us a daddy. (laughs) John confiscates (laughs) his cake to leave. If I'm lying, I'm dying. See for yourself. John finds a support check. Perplexed, John looks to Malcolm. Just because Grayson ain't seen my daddy don't mean I ain't got one. Interior Hoffman guest bedroom day. Violet stacks single-color columns using red, white, or blue blocks. She eats jam-covered toast. In bed, Malcolm eats oatmeal. Why do they gotta be just one color? Violet ignores Malcolm. It's the 4th of July. You should mix them. Ain't no patriot. That Violet scrapes the jam off her toast with her fingers, bites the toast, then sucks her finger. Malcolm snatches Violet's last piece of toast. Just eat it regular. <laughs> Malcolm stuffs his mouth with Violet's toast. Enraged, Violet throws her blocks at Malcolm. Malcolm offers his oatmeal to appease her, and she devours the oatmeal. I meant a butt. Violet defiantly licks the bowl, <laughs> then slides it to Malcolm. Selfish Violet. Damn, Malcolm. <laughs> Exterior Hoffman porch evening. A 4th of July feast. Potato salad, sweet corn, cornbread, and cherry pie. Pitchers of milk and tea. Ray, Violet, John, and Malcolm eye the spread. Looking as if she'd spent hours in a spa instead of a kitchen, Grace arrives with a mountain of crawfish. Ray looks at his wife the way only a man in love can. Violet squeals in anticipation. John, Grace. Joining hands, John begins with America the Beautiful. Oh, beautiful for heroes proved in the liberating strife. For more than self, our country's love and mercy more than life. America, we're grateful for the 4th of July feast. Fathers bless all the brothers and sisters at this table. Brother Ray, Sister Grace, Little Sister Violet, and our newest brother, Malcolm X. A group amen as Malcolm shoots John a dirty look. Brother, Malcolm doesn't appreciate being called Malcolm X. You know why a man named Malcolm Little changed his name to Malcolm X? Grace warns Ray with a cool-it look. Because Little wasn't his real name. Because Little was the name of a white man who made slaves out of Malcolm's daddy and granddaddy. Violet derails Ray. She commandeers an ear of corn and waves it like a baton. Malcolm snickers at her antics. Pass the corn, baby, please. Violet ignores Ray. Grace runs Grace runs interference, passing the corn to Ray. Malcolm points to the potato salad near John. All yours has to do is ass, massa. <laughs> Malcolm glares at John. Snatching the potato salad, Violet passes it to Malcolm. Ray reaches to, interview, Ray. to intervene. Warned, Ray withdraws and takes an angry bite of cornbread. How are the crawfish, John? John sucks a crawfish head, then wipes a faux tear with his shirt tail. None finer than Miss Gracie's, but Mama Kennedy's crying in her grave knowing her boy's loving another woman's mud-ups. Grace and Violet laugh. Even Malcolm grins. Ray's ire grows as Violet rearranges the corn platter according to Cobbling. Violet, that's enough. Ignored, Ray commandeers the platter. Please. Ray. Ray's anger finds a target. Please, Ray, nothing. She's my daughter, and she's damn well going to mind me. Violet yanks the platter out of Ray's hand, and corn cobs fly. You disappoint me, daughter. Violet bursts into tears and flees. Malcolm hobbles after her. You clean up your mess, Raymond Hoffman. When you're finished being disappointed, you apologize to your daughter and to our guests. Grace confiscates the cherry pie and exits. There you go again, Raymond, pulling those punches. Interior, Roland Simpson's dining room, continuous. Sheriff Roll's brisket sits untouched as he cuts green beans into smaller and smaller pieces. Dr. Simpson watches her husband, then removes his plate. Just go. I'm sorry, Sheriff. Simpson puts Roll's straw fedora on his head and kisses him. 
Brisket will keep. Go find the bad guys before you starve to death. Interior, Hoffman Kitchen continuous. Ray washes dishes wearing Grace's floral apron. You think Malcolm X wore floor when he walked? <laughs> Ray shoves a plate into John's hands. I think assholes wear jeans when they're dry. John sniffs the untouched cherry pie on the kitchen table. Touch that and we'll both do a hard time. Couldn't have been all bad. You did learn to torture a guitar. <laughs> Ray fires off an incredulous glare. Interior, Ray and Grace's bedroom evening. Exquisite origami birds fill a display case. Rifles and shotguns, a gun case. On the bed, Violet sleeps with her head in Grace's lap. Fascinated by Grace's doves, Malcolm coos softly to imitate their call. Is Violet retarded? Violet's autistic. What's autistic? She processes things differently than you and me. She sees and feels things in her own way. That why she don't like Ray? Violet loves her father. They just haven't learned to speak the same language. They will. Joining Grace and Violet, Malcolm picks up his road rash. Grace quietly Malcolm's hand, quiets Malcolm's hand, then traces the scar on his cheek. Was this from the accident with your mother? Malcolm nods, yes. You remember? Hesitating, his voice quivers with emotion. We was coming back from the fair. It was raining, and we skidded off the road, hit a tree, and the car caught fire. Mama couldn't get out. Your mama was driving? Malcolm shakes his head no. Someone else. Malcolm nods. A man? He nods again. Grace knows before she asks. Black man? He nods a final time. Interior Hoffman garage night. Fender and Gibson guitars hang on one wall. Photos of Evers, King, Parks, and Seal hang on another. A third wall lined with albums by Nina Simone, B.B. King, Muddy Waters, John Hooker, and Robert Johnson. Ray tunes a guitar as he smokes. John studies a photo of Ray in a prison cell. Some live it. Others play it. Blues does the choosing. That how you see it, Johnny? From up on the stage? That's how I see it, sitting at your dinner table. You're holding a good hand, Ray. Making a bed and sleeping in it every night. Blues got no say in it. Pulling bullet from a guitar case, Ray offers the bourbon to John. John declines the bottle. <laughs> Only Negro Mormon in Mississippi. <laughs> Only Negro Mormon, period. <laughs> Ray drinks for two. Tapping time with his, boot fe- with his boot heel, Ray lays down Bad Like Jesse James by John Lee Hooker. Tapping into Ray's rage, John sings... I'm bad, I'm bad, like Jesse James, uh-huh. I had a friend one time, at least I thought I did. Montage. Sheriff Roll investigates. John's impassioned performance continues. Roll knocks on a door. A black man answers and bolts. Roll questions a black man in his home. Roll takes a baseball bat to the black man's home and possessions. Roll lays his bat on the black man's shoulder. Tears stream down the black man's face. Roll walks away from the house, smiling. Interior, Ray and Grace's bedroom, night. In her nightgown on the bed, Grace creates a delicate origami crane. Ray locks his Smith & Winston forty-four in a safe. Violet all right? She's sleeping. Ray sits down on the bed to rub Grace's feet. She softens with his touch. You watched his mother burn in the crash. The black man was driving. Ray's unsure. Malcolm. He's good, Ray. He's, he's got a good heart. By good, you mean a clan wannabe blackmailer? Grace withdraws her feet. John's not afraid. He's... Just trying to do right by the boy. Ray's tongue is loosened by the bourbon. John got his own boy, ain't never done right by him. Grace sets her origami aside and stands face to face with her husband. John Freeman's the only person in this world who's waded through a lifetime of your sanctimonious bullshit. (laughs) Rage floods Ray's veins. What is it about this boy, Grace? Is it because he talks to you when you own Dot a candle? Because you both have cracker running through your veins? What is it? She slaps him. You've got better in you, husband. 
It's been a long time. Malcolm may be running from the law, but you're the one still locked in the prison cell. Grace exits the room. Alone, Ray stares at the doves. Interior kitchen day. Ray and John eat Cheerios in silence. The untouched cherry pie sits on the table. Grace readies a tray with biscuits and gravy for two. She says nothing as she exits. Time to take that white boy back to Florida. You seeing red? Has nothing to do with Malcolm being white. Ray scrapes his cereal into the garbage. I love you, brother, but I want you and that boy gone by sundown. Interior of Violet's bedroom continuous. From the doorway, Grace watches Violet and Malcolm erect multicolored columns. Now top it with red. Violet complies, completing the red, white, and blue column. Strawberry, vanilla, blueberry, Ben and Jerry. Dumbfounded, Grace enters the room. <laughs> Violet made us ice cream. Violet beams with Malcolm's praise. Grace turns to Ray as he enters. Ray struggles to comprehend what is unfolding. Let's show him a pyramid. Violet builds a white pyramid as Malcolm builds a red pyramid. Malcolm red light, Violet snow white. Grace wipes tears from her eyes and Ray leaves the room. Interior Hoffman kitchen day. Grace pours coffee as John devours cherry pie. Ray studies the white block in his hand. Columns had to be one color only since she was two. Ray fights for composure. Every time I touch my daughter, she cries. You turn up with Malcolm X and she all but turns inside out. Snow White. Grace wraps her arms around Ray's neck. <clears throat> the fold in the shed is rough. Needs a starter, but it's yours, John Freeman. As long as it takes. Proud and happy, Grace kisses Ray. Interior Hoffman shed day. John works under the battered Ford. More antagonist than assistant, Malcolm picks his scabs with needle-nose pliers. When we're leaving. Half inch. You hear me? Malcolm strains to peer under the truck. As soon as you hand me a wrench and crawl your butt under here to help. You must get this thing started or you'll be saying yes, a master, to a sheriff. <laughs> Grace calls from the house. Malcolm, John, lunch. Malcolm hobbles to the house, leaving John wrenchless. Always a pleasure, Master Malcolm. <laughs> Exterior auto parts parking lot day. Ray exits the store with his starter belts and hoses. Interior, Ray's truck, country road day. Ray drives with his 44 on his hip. Hearing a siren, he checks his rear view. A sheriff's truck with flashing cherries tails him. Ray pulls over. Exterior country road day. With a cigar stub parked in his mouth, Sheriff rolls amp- Sheriff Roll ambles to Ray's window. Good morning, Raymond. Ray's posture is displeasure, bordering on aggressive. Sheriff? Well, been a spell since we crossed paths. What, five or six years? Ray sidesteps, rolls bullshit. There's a reason for this cross, and I'm at a loss. <laughs> Hoffman's always been a direct plan. Looking inside Ray's truck, Roll sees Ray's 44. If I was asked you for your concealed carry permit... Guns in my truck, trucks in Mississippi, Sheriff. Roll rests his head on the service revolver. And if I was asked you to step down from your truck... Minus a good reason... You'd be asking a lot, Sheriff. Tension points to violence. Discarding his cigar, Roll abruptly alters his course as he notices Ray's auto parts. Got you a shot of new starter. Make of a job for one man. Depends on the man. Uh, holding fast, Roll unwraps a fresh cigar. Well, damnedest thing. Black man kidnapped a white boy from a hospital in Biloxi a few weeks back. Roll sticks the cigar in his mouth. Turns out the abductor was for money. Up in Lafour County. Same place uh, you originated from, if I'm not mistaken. Revealing nothing, Ray forces Roll to tip his hand. Seems money got himself a history of kidnapping and violence. Young Emmett Till getting crosswise with the locals. Some folks called the lynching, or else the justice. Uh, the point is, John Kennedy, the boy's abductor. Not, not the president. Is likely lying low with Ken or no Ken. Somewhere between Biloxi and money. 
Roll hands Ray a sheriff's business card. It's got my home number. In case you like to talk. Mm-hmm. A three fifty seven stolen from my shop kills some Aryan Brotherhood piece of shit, and you sent me to prison for two years. His white killer almost walks because when you see a black man, all you see is the black. Must be hard on your wife. <laughs> if a white boy's gone missing in Mississippi, I can see why you're looking for John. If I see my friend, I'll be sure to send him your way. Ray puts his truck in gear and drives away. Exterior Hoffman backyard night. Shrouded in fog, the Ford idles. Grace places Malcolm's backpack in the truck. Looking at Malcolm, tears fill her eyes. She hugs Malcolm. Malcolm clings to Grace. Ray and John confer on the driver's side. Things go south in L.A. Ray hands John a $20 bill with a phone number written on the bill. Keep pulling punches, brother. John and Ray embrace. Grace assists Malcolm into the truck. John and Ray join them on the passenger's side. I put gauze and Neosporin in Malcolm's pack. <laughs> Some biscuits. Grace spontaneously hugs John. Take care of him, John Freeman. Like he's your own. Speaking to John, Ray motions under the truck seat. In case you're in uh, Louisville, under the seat. Ray shakes Malcolm's hand. Good luck, Malcolm. John climbs in the driver's seat, standing at the passenger window. Racing, Ray and Grace hold hands. Tell Violet goodbye. Malcolm looks Ray in the eye. Thank you, Mr. Hoffman. Thank you, son. John puts the truck in gear and disappears into the fog. Interior, pickup, country road night. Malcolm shoves a biscuit into his mouth as John navigates fog and Malcolm's foul mood. John dials in Hellhound on my trail. Malcolm snaps the radio off. You don't like Robert Johnson? No. (laughs) A man in your position should appreciate the Johnson's talent. Ignoring John, Malcolm stares into foggy darkness as he chews. Young Robert made a deal with the devil to play the blues. Malcolm rolls his eyes. The story is, he couldn't play his way out of the paper bag, so Johnson packs up his guitar, leaves town, comes back a year later, playing the blues like he invented it. So what'd the devil get? Johnson's soul. He died at 27. How old you say you were? (laughs) John grins as Malcolm scowls and eats another biscuit. Interior, pickup, white kitchen, Louisiana day. Malcolm sleeps as John drives through the village. Exterior alley. Malcolm wakes as John parks in an alley from a cafe. I'm going for breakfast. Lay low. Taking his keys in his satchel, John heads for the cafe. Malcolm ducks when a sheriff's car parks on the opposite end of the alley. As the sheriff exits his patrol, a stray greets the sheriff. The sheriff flicks his cigarette at the dog, laughing as it yelps and flees. Incensed, Malcolm waits for the sheriff to walk away, then exits the truck with his knife. Malcolm slashes the sheriff's tires and returns to the truck, where a late teen's skinhead, covered with piercings and racist tattoos, nods his approval. You fucking pig had it coming! With one eye bloodshot and the other lazy, the skinhead gives Malcolm the once-over. That ain't the only one that's about to get his ass kicked. The skin reaches for Malcolm's knife. Is this a piece you got? Malcolm holds his ground. <laughs> Been getting as easy and more fun to beat it, you scrawny ass. John enters the alley with the takeout. Ooh, got us an alley, nigga! The skinhead spits as John arrives and takes the knife from Malcolm's head. Get in the truck. Malcolm hesitates. Now. Malcolm begrudges slamming the door. John brushes past the skinhead on the way to the driver's door. Running here's done a number to Sheriff's patrol car. John sees the slashed tires on the cruiser. <laughs> Sheriff gonna be red fucking hot unless you got something to keep my purty mouth shut. Curling his lips, <laughs> the skinhead reveals a crack addict enamel. John holds the takeout bag. The skinhead spits out, spits on the bag, then reads the license plate on John's truck. License plate, 050SIS, Mississippi Farm Vehicle. Zero, cinco, zero, sis on miss. Got a ring to it. 
John holds a $100 bill just beyond the skinhead's reach. As the skinhead grabs the cash, John grabs the skinhead by his pierced lip. You must stay shut while you've got a lip to do the job. The skinhead runs like an abused stray. Fuming, John climbs into the truck. You're laying low, just cost us gas money in LA. Exterior, New Orleans outskirts day. John's truck passes a Welcome to New Orleans sign. Interior, John's pickup, Lower Ninth Ward Day. Winding through the Katrina-decimated neighborhood, John parks several lots away from a driveway leading to a concrete slab. A utility shed stands on the slab. John's guard is high as he looks up, then down the deserted street. Home, sweet home. Exterior, John's shed day. John opens the shed, revealing a Spartan living space. An army-issue cot, gallons of water, and food in plastic containers is the sum total. Where's your house? A question for the crops, corpse and engineers. Shit. Katrina? She left me she left me my hops and the clothes on my back. The rest is hers. John drinks from a gallon of water, then holds it out to Malcolm. He refuses. Don't people steal your stuff? <laughs> I'm more worried about the people leaving me stuff. Like you. John's humor hurts Malcolm's feelings. I ain't staying here. It's only for a night or two while I earn some gas money. Where will I sleep? John is preempted by a Ducati screaming up the drive. French and Creole, 30, clad in black leather. Jewel Robin dismounts the crotch rocket. Jewel's Darth Vader stature shut, shatters as she removes her helmet, revealing delicate features bathed in worry. You're late, John. John's disarming smile serves to agitate Jewel. I've been looking. John silences Jewel with a lover's kiss. Malcolm blushes, pulling away. Jewel looks curiously at Malcolm. Jewel, meet Malcolm Xavier. Malcolm Xavier, Jewel Robin. Jewel shakes Malcolm's hand and means it. Nice to meet you, Malcolm Xavier. Malcolm winces in pain. Henry Cook Gumbo, perhaps you and Malcolm would care to dine with us? John looks mischievously at Malcolm. What do you think, Malcolm? Shall we pass the evening with two grumpy, cruel women? (laughs) Malcolm's dread flashes like neon. You have to be sweetened. You'd have to sweeten your offer. Straddling her Ducati, Jewel brings the bike roaring to life. You can ride bitch to Henry's. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm shakes his head no. John bursts out in laughter. Interior, Henry's FEMA trailer evening. Flimsy trailer turned warm home. Hand-sewn curtains, crochet dollies, potted flowers, and peach cobbler cooling on a rack. Malcolm sits on a sofa with Jewel's grandmother, Henrietta Henry Robin. French Creole, 70 and blind. Henry plays solitaire on a coffee table. Henry's supernatural abilities bewilder Malcolm. Washing dishes in a tiny kitchen, John swats Jewel's ass. Mind your hand, there's a child in my house. John, Jewel admonishes John with a look. Malcolm, did John tell you he's a hero? Jewel. John ain't no hero. Grand? First draw, need the yellow pages. Jewel retrieves a newspaper photo clipping. He almost died. Jewel. Malcolm studies the photo of John in a hospital bed, holding four lab puppies. Heading... Bluesman rescues family of five. John Freeman, Kennedy pulled a mother Labrador and her four puppies from Katrina's deadly grasp. Battling rising floodwaters, the heroic act left Kennedy severely injured. Were the pups okay? Mom okay. Mom too. Ty Brew living two blocks yonder, barking day and night. Jewel hugs an embarrassed John. What? You're a hero to Labradors everywhere. <laughs> Jewel kisses John. The mm-hmm. child. Malcolm looks to Jewel to explain Henry's ability to play cards. She sees with her hands. Malcolm stares at Henry's supple hands. I know you's a fisherman. <laughs> How'd you know that? You're quiet. Good fisherman, always quiet. Bonsoir, Cherie Moyne. Standing, Henry removes a fishing rod, tackle box, and golf putter from a closet. Let's get walking, child. Walking where? Henry exits the trailer using the upside-down putter for a cane. Walking fishing's where? Malcolm looks to Jewel. She can't fish. 
You kept your trap shut all night. No need to keep it now, or no need to open it now. Creole woman invites you fishing. You best grab your worm. <laughs> John laughs as Malcolm chases after Henry. Exterior neighborhood evening. FEMA trailers, tents, and shacks. With Malcolm at her side, Henry navigates the streets as if her vision were 2020. How do you see where you're going? There's only one way to see. You really see with your hands? Hands and heart. Sees what they wide, wide eyes open miss every time. Passing a plywood shack, Malcolm hears Me and the Devil Blues being sung by a black man in the doorway. Snap Gibbons, age unknown, sings the Robert Johnson song a cappella with the voice knowing the pain of a noose and the joy of seeing the sunrise. Will you knock upon my door and I say hello, Satan, I believe it's time to go. Me and the devil walking side by side. Malcolm slows to look. Ain't your business, child. Malcolm glances back, feeling Snap's gaze. Keep walking. Exterior fishing pier evening. Henry and Malcolm pass men and women fishing the evening away along the Mississippi. Henry greets those she passes. Cyrus, Josephine, Frypan. Men tip their hats, women nod. As Henry approaches a uniformed off-duty ticket cop, Malcolm switches sides. The cop eyes Malcolm with interest. You good, Miss Henry? Right as rain, Rebel. Malcolm avoids eye contact. Selecting a spot, Henry gets to... Henry gets to business with her hook, salmon eggs, and chewing tobacco. Henry bites off a plug, then offers Malcolm the tobacco. Here. Repulsed, Malcolm stuffs the tobacco plug into his pocket. Saving it for later. Smart. Malcolm stands clear as Henry casts long and true. Cool. Henry spits like a pro. Men's easy to impress. Fish is more discerning. Interior Jules FEMA trailer night. John and Jewel glisten in summer heat-turned passion. John rolls over holding Jewel. Jewel inhales the scent of his neck. I miss you. John kisses Jewel, then checks his watch. What time you on? 9.30. Mark is good with me sitting in? Man thinks you invented the dollar bill. <laughs> John reaches for his pants. John, I'm late. It's only 8.30. Jewel takes John's hand to gain his attention. <laughs> late, late. Amused, John unleashes a huge grin. Jewel mistakes a smile for joy. I'm pregnant. We're pregnant. As if shouldering cement, John sinks to the bed. Yeah, I'm sh- sure I'm... Hurt. Jewel covers herself with the sheet. Finish and finish, and that'll be the last thing you ask me. John is slow to regroup. I'm a blues man, Jewel. My life's music, the road, and who I am. No, it's what you do. Rescuing that lab and her pups, that's who you are. I have a son. You haven't seen Lionel since he was a boy. John refuses to look at Jewel as he dresses. I'm not asking for anything you don't have, but if it's something you won't give... John offers Jewel nothing. Exterior, fishing pier, night. The ticket cop glances Malcolm as Henry bites her hook. You making trouble for the popo? No. <laughs> Fisherman liars. You ain't no different, child. Handing her pole to Malcolm, Henry touches Malcolm's hand. Henry freezes with the contact. Malcolm jerks his hand away as if electrocuted. Tell me about it. Tell me about your mama. Stunned, Malcolm stammers. She, she, she died. And you angry at her? It wasn't her. Henry reaches for Malcolm's hand. He withdraws. Give me a hand, child. Malcolm reluctantly complies. Henry goes rigid. Henry goes rigid as she sees the accident. Exterior Florida back road night. Flashback. Darkness. Slashing rain and wind. Bloody and dazed. Malcolm, age nine, crawls from the shattered rear window of an overturned sedan wrapped around a cypress tree. Sparks spray from the engine as Malcolm peers into the mangled front seat. Mama. Malcolm sees a black man in the passenger seat with his torso piercing the windshield. Crawling to the driver's side, Malcolm sees his bloodied mother suspended upside down by her seatbelt. 
Semi-conscious, she moans. Mama! Malcolm fights to free his mother. Sparks ignite a ruptured fuel line, starting a fire in the engine compartment. Malcolm recoils as flames engulf the car. Malcolm's mother screams, covering his ears, and Malcolm witnesses the unthinkable. Exterior, fishing pier, return to present. Releasing his hands, Henry softens. We best be getting home. Exterior, neighborhood, night. Hands stuffed in his pockets, kicking a can, Malcolm trails behind Henry. Quit now before you wake the dead. Malcolm and Henry and Malcolm near Snap's shack, cloaked in darkness and shadows. Snap sings Robert Johnson's Crossroad. I went down to the crossroads, fell down on my knees, went down to the crossroads, fell down on my knees. As the Lord above, have mercy now, say, poor Bob, if you please. Henry directs Malcolm with her putter cane to the shack. Go now, I'll be waiting. A boy condemned, Malcolm walks towards Snap's haunting voice. Exterior, Snap given shack night. Snap's milky eyes bore through Malcolm as he approaches. You know this song, boy? Unsettled, Malcolm nods yes. You know Mr. Johnson. Soul to soul. Shy of sinister, Snap's, Snap's laugh leaves Malcolm cold and defensive. He sold it to the devil. Hell you know about the devil, boy. Malcolm is scared silence. Ever seen the devil? Smelled his breath? Malcolm shakes his head. Snap sniffs Malcolm's breath. Think I smell him now. Snap hobbles back into his shack. Interior, Snap Gibbons' shack continuous. Snap wheezes in the pitch black. Striking a match, he lights a kerosene lantern. As Malcolm's eyes adjust to the jaundiced flame, he takes in walls covered with black and white lynching photographs and postcards. Blacks hanged, blacks burned, blacks tarred and feathered. Malcolm blinks to comprehend the grisly scene. Snap points with a finger twisted like black licorice. That dead boy got him the right to be blue. Photo. A white girl poses in her Sunday best next to a mutilated corpse and the jubilant girl gleams. Reason to celebrate comes easy to some. Malcolm forces black bile with a hard swallow. Tears with his eyes, fist in a cast. Turning, Malcolm finds himself facing a hangman's noose. What at myself? Malcolm sees his reflection in a mirror, his head and neck aligned with the deadly noose. Brother Reggie and me looked like uh, we was Christmas ornaments hanging from with that tree. Malcolm looks into, sh- looks into the shame clouding his eyes. Only reason I'm telling you is because my branch giveaway Reggie weren't so lucky. Why folks took to calling me Snap, let me walk away. Said they was having me for a rainy day. Guess they have they still saving. Coughing up phlegm, Snap spits into a can. <clears throat> Maybe Mr. Johnson sold his soul proper. Maybe he just seen the devil wearing a pretty dress on a Sunday afternoon. Snap blows out the lantern. Interior, Henry's FEMA trailer night. Henry tucks an upset Malcolm into bed. What Snap showed you tonight, it ain't gotta be true for you. Henry kisses the scar on Malcolm's cheek. A boy loves his mama, child. It takes a man to forgive her. Interior, Angel Blue Nightclub Night. Singing, John bears the soul of every fan held hostage in the blue-saturated club. Me the devil walking side by side. Me the devil walking side by side. I'm gonna beat my woman till I get satisfied. A white woman with a visible collateral grinds solo inches from the stage. She slides a hundred into John's boot. Interior Angel Blue Bar continuous. Serving customers three deep, Jewel tends bar and hip huggers on a halter. Jewel's eyes are glued on John's seductress. A man winks at Jewel, stuffing a twenty-two stuffing a twenty into her overflowing tip jar. Jewel moves on to the next dreamer. Exterior blue parking lot, Angel Blue parking lot night. John counts his cash, leaning on Jules Ducati. Exiting the club in her black leathers, Jules' greeting is chilly. You were a hit. It's the curious. We're the clowns. Jewel brushes past John. John grabs her and pulls her close. 
Malcolm sleeping at Henry's. Jewel pulls away in disgust, straddling her bike. You took that boy on without a roof to cover your own head. I'm taking him to his father, Jewel. Jewel slips on her helmet and kickstarts the Ducati. Find Malcolm's father, John. And if you've got anything left, try being a father to your own son. Knocking down her visor, Jewel peels out in a screeching arc. John stands in a plume of smoke. Exterior Henry Steema trailer day. Waiting on the curb, Malcolm strokes his rabbit's foot when John pulls up. Malcolm climbs in, slamming the door. Interior John's pickup continuous. Rough night? Getting the silent treatment, John turns on the radio. Malcolm snaps it off. Henry's crazy. Why'd you leave me with her? You wanted a fish? I want to go to Los Angeles. If I played or not, you sleep in the motel. As John slows for a stop sign, Malcolm bolts from the truck. Frickin' liar! Malcolm runs down the street. Malcolm! Exterior neighborhood street day. Catching Malcolm, John grabs him by the arm and Malcolm cries out in pain. A concerned mother pushing a baby stroller dials her phone. When did I lie to you? Malcolm pulls his support check out from his backpack. You said, you said if I told the truth, you, you take me to my daddy, but I ain't never gonna see him. You're lying like the rest of them. You think Grayson was lying because he didn't know you had a father? I ain't talking about Grayson. The truth floors John like a sucker punch. Have you seen your father, Malcolm? I've seen him. Seen him plenty. What's his name? Malcolm glances at his support check. It's a law firm. Tears penetrate Malcolm's defenses. You didn't know you had a dad. Your grandfather, your mother, they lied to you. You're all freaking liars, man. Malcolm sobs as the siren sounds. You go right now. No bullshit. The siren nears. Interior John's pickup, Texas Highway Night. Robert Johnson's When You Got a Good Friend plays. John drives. Malcolm sleeps stretched across the seat, covered by John's jacket. Highway sign, El Paso, 200 miles. At, by the dashboard's glow, John reads his money order, payable to Asia Kennedy. In the rear view, flashing reds. John white knuckles the wheel as a Texas trooper pulls John over, and Malcolm wakes. Don't move. Pull my jacket around your head. Cover your face with your hat. The trooper approaches with the flashlight. Good evening, officer. Good evening. This is your vehicle, sir? No, it belongs to a friend. The license is for a Mississippi farm truck. It's a bit of an emergency, officer. The trooper shifts his light to Malcolm. Malcolm's face and race are concealed. John sees that the trooper is black. My son's riding a fever. We're headed to the hospital in El Paso. Sir, may I see you? Malcolm vomits in John's lap. John's surprise is real. The trooper steps back from his truck. I'm sorry I've delayed you. Get your son to a doctor ASAP. Thank you, officer. As the officer pulls away, Malcolm smiles as he shows John the tobacco plug in his hand. I know this shit was going to taste like shit. (laughs) (laughs) Exterior El Paso outskirts day. El Paso shimmers in the Chichuan desert heat as John's pickup approaches. Interior John's pickup, El Paso freeway day. Food wrappers litter the pickup. Driving, John consults an El Paso map while Malcolm reads a fishing magazine. John exits the freeway. Exterior neighborhood street day. Turning on Calle de Amor, John's pickup parks across the street from house number 712. Interior John's pickup continuous. John removes his money order from the envelope with the same address. You said we was only stopping for food and gas. This is the last stop. John exits the cab, taking his keys, satchel, and money order. Where are you going? Home. Exterior, street, sidewalk, continuous. John crosses the street, and he pauses to read the name Kennedy on the mailbox. Exterior, house, front door, day. John reaches for the bell. A placard on the door reads, Am I casa es su casa? Mi casa es su casa. (laughs) (laughs) The bell rings. Got it. Lionel Kennedy, John's 18-year-old son, enthusiastically answers. What's up? John is speechless, opposite his handsome and animated son. Lionel in no way recognizes his father. What can I do for you, brother? John's awkwardness is interrupted by the arrival of an ancient Labrador named Ike. 
Ike expels a labored wolf. <laughs> Ike be all bark and no bite since he lost his last tooth. He will, however, lick you to death. Lionel strikes Ike's head. With pleasantries exhausted, John says the only words possible. Uh, I'm selling a magazine. Mom! Brother's got the goods. You gotta pitch the boss. Mom! <laughs> Joining Lionel at the door, Asia Kennedy is late 30s and black, a woman any other man would trade his future for. Seeing John, Asia momentarily loses her breath. Brother's selling magazines. Recovering, Asia plays along. Do you have a publication on selecting a college? That's my cue. Hang tough, brother. <laughs> Lionel departs. John is speechless a second time. When Asia finally speaks, her gentle voice is devoid of anger or malice. It's been too long, John. Hope flashes in John's eyes. Sniffing, Ike musters a second wolf. Asia smiles sadly at Ike. So long not even Ike remembers. With hope spilling from his body, John hands a support check to Asia. She reads the check. We're not interested in renewing our subscription, but thank you. Asia returns John's check, then closes the door. Adrift, John stares at the meaningless piece of paper in his hand. Interior John's pickup day. John climbs into the cab. About time. He broods. We just gonna sit here? Exterior El Madrid bar parking lot El Paso day. John's truck skids to a stop. Interior John's pickup continuous. Yanking the keys from the ignition, John rummages through his satchel. Now where you going? Locating his child support notebook and a cigar, John opens the door to exit. Malcolm grabs John's arm. You promised. Take your hands off me. Malcolm's hold crumbles under John's powerful grip. John exits with his satchel. Malcolm watches John toss his cigar wrapped, wrapper, and child support notebook into the pickup bed. You promised. John enters the bar. Malcolm kicks the dashboard, knocking his baseball cap to the floor. Reaching for his cap, Malcolm finds Ray's present, a Louisville slugger stashed beneath the seat. Malcolm exits the truck with the bat. Tossing a rock in the air, he hits it across the parking lot. Interior, El Madrid Bar, day. The thrill is gone by B.B. King plays as two white cowboys drink cores and shoot pool. Smoking his cigar, John downs a shot. He motions the female bartender for another. The bartender pours two shots of bullet with a suggestive lilt. Happy hour. John lays down a $100 bill. Let's see what happy takes us. The bartender's smile seals the deal. Dim Cowboy points out John's good fortune to Muscle Cowboy. Some cat's got all the look. Muscle Cowboy glances John's way with a little interest. Dim Cowboy chokes a shot. And I do mean all the luck. Muscle Cowboy sinks the eight ball. You're around. As Muscle Cowboy racks, Dim Cowboy heads to the bar singing with B.B. King. The thrill is gone. The thrill is gone away. The thrill is gone, baby. John's foul mood heads south as Dim Cowboy continues to sing next to John. Dim Cowboy holds up two fingers to the bartender. I'll buy you a beer, cowboy, if you let Mr. King finish the song. <laughs> Your generosity's appreciated, and I won't take you up on that offer. But let me correct you, if I may. You see, Martin Luther King wasn't a singer. He was a preacher. B.B. King, you dumb shit. Now haul your white ass down the trail, cowboy. You're the Negro. You know. John hammers Dim Cowboy with a jab to the face. As Dim hits the floor, Muscle Cowboy slams John across the back with the pool cue, and John buckles. The bartender dials 911. Muscle Cowboy lands a second blow to John's ribs, splintering the cue. John escapes as Muscle Cowboy grabs a fresh cue. Exterior El Madrid bar parking lot continuous. John stumbles toward the vacant pickup with Muscle Cowboy in pursuit. Let's finish what you start. Muscle backs John against the hood and draws back the cue. Slam! Muscle Cowboy crumples like a rag doll. Standing behind Muscle Cowboy, Malcolm draws his bat back for a second blow. No. John steps between Malcolm and the injured cowboy. He sucker punched you. I saw through the window. <laughs> John reaches for Malcolm's back. 
it was me. He was gonna kill you. It's over, it's over. Malcolm gradually relinquishes the back and John sinks to his knees. Exiting the bar, the bartender brings John his satchel. The police on their way, go. We gotta go, John. No bullshit. Defeated, John shakes his head no. Only pansies quit, and I ain't no pansy. Get your ass in the truck. Malcolm leverages John upright, then forces him into the passenger seat. John drops the keys, Malcolm starts the truck, jams it in gear, and guns it. Exterior Walmart parking lot, La Cruces, uh, New Mexico, Sunrise. John, John's pickup sits hidden among a herd of recreational vehicles. Malcolm returns to the pickup with the McDonald's bag. Interior, John's pickup continuous. John wakes up as Malcolm climbs into the cab. Malcolm hands John a cup of coffee. Disoriented, John surveys his surroundings. Walmart. Malcolm rolls a pancake with butter and syrup and eats it like a burrito. It's a motel for cars. <laughs> Malcolm hands John an Egg McMuffin. Thanks. It's your money. Yesterday, thank you. Malcolm displays the cast on his left wrist slash hand. You're lucky I'm a ratty. Malcolm chases his pancake with milk. A white mustache frosts his lip. Your lip. John wipes Malcolm's lip with his hand. He was your son back there? He didn't know you? Malcolm sheepishly removes John's child support notebook from his pocket. You tossed it out. I kind of found it when you were drinking. Malcolm hands the notebook to John. John flips through the pages, stopping at the final entry. You think it's too late, but it ain't. John is waylaid by Malcolm's wisdom and compassion. Scoot over, brother Malcolm. Smiling, Malcolm drops the keys into John's hand. Exterior, Los Angeles Oceanside, day. Sun-soaked beaches, airbrushed beachgoers, palms waving as if friends. Exterior, Los Angeles 110 Freeway, day. John pick up... John's pickup exits the 110. Exterior, Hamilton and Hamilton Law Office, Beverly Hills Day. John's pickup parks in front of Hamilton and Hamilton LLP. Interior, John's pickup continuous. John compares the address in the support check, 666 Wilshire Boulevard, with the gold numbers on the building. As promised. Eyeing the building, Malcolm strokes his rabbit's foot. What's LLP? Lawyers, lots of them, by the looks of it. I'll tell him I forced you to bring me. It's on me. John hands Malcolm the $20 bill with Ray's phone number on it. This is from Ray and Grace. If things aren't good... Malcolm pockets the bill as he squeezes his rabbit's foot. You've never met your father? Malcolm shakes his head. No. John touches Malcolm's rabbit foot. Today is your lucky day. Interior, Hamilton and Hamilton Law Office Day. John and Malcolm enter an office built on success and fueled by power and prestige. Reception desk. A receptionist greets Malcolm and John. Welcome to Hamilton and Hamilton. How may I assist you today? With Malcolm shut down, John leads. We'd like to talk to Mr. Hamilton. The receptionist vets John with shrewd grace. Would that be Mr. Hamilton Sr. or Mr. Hamilton Jr.? John glances at stately photos of Mr. Hamilton Sr. and Jr. hanging on the wall. Let's start with Jr. <laughs> You're certain it's Mr. Hamilton Jr. you wish to see? Sweetheart, I'm not sure of anything since I left Alabama. <laughs> John's blunt charm forces the receptionist to regroup. Would you happen to have an appointment, Mr.? John lays Malcolm's child support check on the counter. Hamilton. Malcolm Hamilton. His appointment's 14 years overdue. One moment. Eyes glued on Malcolm, the receptionist whispers into the headset. Like a genie, an executive secretary materializes, greeting John and Malcolm as if lifelong clients. Good morning, Malcolm. Good morning, Mr. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy. The secretary never misses a beat. Mr. Hamilton Jr. will see you now, if you'll follow me. She leads Malcolm and John into the bowels. Interior, Charles Hamilton Jr. office day. The secretary silently withdraws as she delivers John and Malcolm to Charles Everett Hamilton Jr. With manners as polished as his John Lobb penny loafers, Charles, white and 35, handles the awkwardness with a diplomat's finesse. Charles shakes Malcolm's trembling hand and then John's. Malcolm, Mr. Kennedy, I'm Charles Hamilton. Please come in. John and Malcolm's road warrior appearance amplifies Charles' crisp diction and style. Overwhelmed, Malcolm stares at his father's likeness. 
please have a seat. Malcolm shrinks in the lavish furnishing. Standing, John hands Malcolm's child support check back to Charles. Smiling as if winning, as smiled as if handed a winning lottery, Charles pushes a button. His secretary reappears. Uh, please take Malcolm for a refreshment. I'm sure he'd enjoy a uh, root beer float. Malcolm shakes his head. No, it's okay. The secretary escorts a reticent Malcolm out of the office. Alone with Charles, John pulls no punches. Either he's your son or your brother. Under attack, <laughs> under attack, Charles becomes the $500 an hour attorney that he is. Regardless of who you think I am, Mr. Kennedy, this check doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the boy's mother. Charles distances, distances himself from the check, laying it on his desk. The boy watched his mother burn to death in a car accident five years ago. He didn't make it to L.A. News. And then the check and the boy belong to his legal guardian, which I presume you are not. That would be you. As John reads Charles' Harvard Law Diploma on the wall... Unless you're a better lawyer than your man, than you're a man, which I presume you are. And who are you, Mr. Kennedy? John's anger mixes with his guilt for an ugly combo. Just another deadbeat father justifying my existence. Sounds familiar? Charles adopts a new tone and strategy. There are appropriate and necessary legal channels, and it will take time. It is your son, make time. Charles studies John for weakness. John reveals none. Waiting, writing an address on his business card, Charles hands the card to John. It's my home. Give me an hour. Bring Malcolm there, too. John picks up a framed photo of Charles' wife and two sons. Betrayal has no statute of limitations, Charles. One hour, Mr. Kennedy. You have my word. Exterior Hamilton residence, Beverly Hills Day. Malcolm and John stand at the front door of a mansion designed to either impress or to intimidate. Malcolm is both. John is neither. Home, sweet home. John reaches for the bell. Malcolm grabs John's hand. Malcolm's eyes plead. You have raised a number. Malcolm trembles. Struck by his fragility, John reaches for Malcolm, just as the front door opens, destroying the moment. Come in, Malcolm. With John's urging, Malcolm enters. Charles ushers Malcolm inside, then rejoins John on the porch. I'll, I'll just be a minute. Closing the door, Charles hands John an envelope. Thank you for your trouble, Mr. Kennedy, and your discretion. Charles reaches for John's hand. John glances at the check inside the envelope, then shakes Charles's hand. As Charles enters the house, John and Malcolm's eyes lock. Malcolm's eyes fall to the envelope in John's hand. The door closes, and John hears the door lock like a prison cell. Interior Hamilton Residence Day. Malcolm turns 360 degrees in the Cardinal foyer. An eight-foot bronze statue of a Comanche warrior is the focal point of this space. Malcolm is mesmerized by the statue's fierceness. It's amazing, isn't he? Living room. Charles leads Malcolm into a living room overlooking a backyard, more paradise than back. A swimming pool sparkles, sparkles as a Hispanic gardener tends to a hundred blooming alliums. See. Malcolm sinks into the leather sofa beneath the family portrait. Portrait. Charles with his beautiful wife and two handsome teenage sons. Malcolm pales beneath the tanned faces. My family. We went to Greece last year. Where are they? Italy. Would you like something to eat? Malcolm shrugs indifference. Interior Hamilton dining room day. An elegant table seating 20. Malcolm picks at his spinach salad with his fingers as Charles wields sterling flatware. Uh, Rosie can make you a sandwich. Malcolm forces a bite. We can swim after lunch if you like. Where'd you meet her? Your mother? Malcolm nods. Charles lays his fork on the plate and wipes his mouth. Uh, we met in Key West. It was over spring break. I was in law school. Your, <laughs> your mother was a waitress at a tiki bar. The subtle contempt is lost on Malcolm. You loved her? Your mother and I were only together once, Malcolm. Exterior gas station Los Angeles day. John punching buttons on a payphone. He stares at his child support notebook as the phone rings. Hello? It's me. John sees a man pushing a double baby stroller. 
I've made some uh, bad choices, Jewel. I'm coming home. You found Malcolm's father? I guess. You guess. As the man pushing the stroller passes, John sees the stroller filled with the man's possessions and not his children. Do us all a favor, John. Don't come home until you're sure. (laughs) The receiver goes dead. Taking a final look at his child support notebook, John drops it in the trash. Interior Hamilton dining room day. The spinach salad salads wilt with the tension. Uh, I am sorry about your mother, Malcolm. Malcolm picks up bacon bits from his salad with his fingers. Who told you? Your grandfather. Malcolm's silence forces Charles to expand on his lie. We decided it was better for you to keep the things the way that we were. Malcolm stabs a crouton with a fork. Your mother and I were we were very different. We lived in different worlds. I was becoming a lawyer. And well, she that's was what be- a lawyer does, or your daddy teach you that? Charles has no answer. Interior John's pick up L.A. Freeway Day. John approaches a billboard for housing development. Billboard. Home sweet home superimposed over a delighted white SoCal family. John cuts off traffic exiting the freeway. Interior Hamilton Sun's bedroom day. Charles pulls board shorts from the dresser as Malcolm surveys the dream room. A Dodgers jersey covered with autographs. An elaborate gaming entertainment system. Photos of Charles and his sons landing trophy fish. Malcolm stares at the tarpon mounted on the wall. Yeah, well, these should fit. Malcolm eyes the trendy shorts with contempt. Exterior swimming pool day. Malcolm dangles his feet in the water, watching the gardener plant a bed of pansies. Arriving with iced tea, Charles sees Malcolm's road rash. You took quite a spill. He shrugs. Charles hands Malcolm a tea. Figured, I like, figured you liked your sweet? Charles' cell phone rings. Oh, get, get it. I'll take this inside. Charles enters the house. Malcolm offers the tea to the gardener. Hey, you thirsty? The gardener smiles. You're the one doing all the work. The vexed gardener watches Malcolm circle the pool. and listless, Malcolm enters the house. Interior living room, day. Malcolm studies the family portrait taken in Greece. He moves on to a hallway. Hallway. Native American art Native American art hangs on the walls. Malcolm studies a portrait of Sitting Bull. The chief's eyes dark with disillusionment. Continuing, Malcolm nears a closed door. Charles' voice carries from the room. A boarding school. Not Phillips. Uh, try St. Paul's or church. The urgency in Charles' voice draws Malcolm closer. A trust with a guardian. Use a East Coast firm. The black man for all I care. He's trailer trash. Make him think he won the lottery, but but no more. All of it was ever... All of it if he ever shows his face in L.A. again. Laura and the boys can never know. Malcolm slumps as if kicked in the stomach. Exterior swimming pool day. In street clothes, Malcolm stands at the pool's edge when Charles returns. You're dressed. I thought you were in the water. You'd be in the water. Charles enters the water at Mal- as Malcolm's rage simmers. Water's nice. Charles swims a skillful lap, and he glides up to Malcolm. Uh, that was Laura and the boys. I'm going to meet them for a few days. Uh, we're going to get everything squared away when I get back. Malcolm motions to the gardener. Why don't he say nothing? He autistic? He doesn't speak English. Malcolm walks to the flower bed. Kneeling, Malcolm plants a pansy. The gardener looks to Charles. Malcolm, please. Malcolm plants a second pansy. Charles exits the pool to stop Malcolm. I pay him to do that. Same as you paid my mama? You're young. You... you... Don't, I don't expect you to understand. Understand that my mama wasn't good enough for you? That you hated her? I didn't hate your mother. Not while you was fucking her, no. Lucky for you didn't take much to make her think she won the lottery. Grabbing the glass of iced tea, Malcolm dumps it in the flower bed. He even tossed in some sweet tea. Malcolm walks to the pool. Like, I'm sorry, Malcolm. I can make this work for everyone. I just need time to explain to my wife and sons. Can you give me time to explain? 
Explain well, why you do that for me. Explain why a Florida crack is spitting their pool, asshole. Spitting in the pool, Malcolm grabs his backpack and runs for the gate exiting the yard. Malcolm! Malcolm clears the gate like a chase deer. Charles does it. Malcolm! Malcolm sprints down the driveway and disappears. Exterior Hamilton Street Day. Malcolm runs down the sidewalk, cutting a lawn leading to an adjacent street. John's pickup races by, missing Malcolm. Interior John's pickup driveway continuous. John speeds into Charles' driveway. Exterior Hamilton House Day. John bangs on the door as he rings the bell. Charlie answers. Where's Malcolm? You should have never brought him to L.A. Charles attempts to slam the door on John. Where is he? Interior foyer continuous. You're committing a crime, Mr. Kennedy. Grabbing Charles' throat, John pins him against the door. I'm way committed. I'm just getting started. Uh, Charles' resolve disappears with his breath. He ran away. Where? I don't know. John squeezes harder. I don't know. John stuffs his buy-off check into the waistband of Charles' board shorts. If something happens to that boy, you'll need an army of lawyers to piece, back, to piece you back together. John slams the door as he leaves. Alone, Charles rubs his throat and catches his breath. <sighs> Fuck. The doorbell rings. Angry, Charles whips the door open. Why do you even give a shit where Malcolm is? Exterior front door continuous. Agent Miller exhibits mild surprise on the other side. Presenting his F- FBI badge, Miller reads the check in Charles's hands. The question I'm asking myself for 2,500 miles... But more importantly, Mr. Hamilton, why don't you give a shit? Exterior, Beverly Hills Shopping District Day. Malcolm wanders among the chic and wealthy. He watches a fancy woman carrying a fancier dog in her Hermes bag. A hipster girl in her teens approaches Malcolm. You know where the beach is? Which beach? The one next to the ocean? The girl condescendingly points west. Exterior, Venice Beach day. Malcolm marvels at the beautiful and bizarre. Searching his backpack for food, he finds empty wrappers. Spotting a hot dog vendor, Malcolm pulls Ray's $20 bill from his pocket. He sees the phone number on the bill. Exterior payphone Venice Beach day. Malcolm shoves change into the phone, then dials a number on Ray's $20 bill. Hello? Emotion overtakes Malcolm. Hello? It was my mama, Grace. Malcolm? She was driving that night. Interior... Ray and Grace's bedroom evening. Grace holds her doves while sitting on the bed. A concerned Ray sits next to her. Malcolm, are you okay? She didn't mean to do it. It was an accident. Exterior payphone continuous. A tear rolls down Malcolm's face. Grant told me the black man was driving, but he was lying. Where are you, love? Grant made me lie. I've been lying ever since. Interior, Ray and Grace's bedroom continuous. Malcolm, go to the police. Ray takes the phone from Grace. Malcolm, where's John? He left me. Where's your father? I ain't got no father. The line goes dead. Malcolm? Malcolm! Ray slams the phone. Reaching into his nightstand, Ray finds Sheriff Roll's business card. Ray looks at Grace, then dials the number on the card. Interior, Roll in Simpson's bedroom evening. Watching the cooking channel in bed, Dr. Simpson hands Sheriff Roll the phone. It's Ray Hoffman. Intrigued, Roll takes the phone. Yeah, can I help you, Raymond? Exterior, Los Angeles Beach, Sunset. John searches for Malcolm as beachgoers take shelter from an imminent storm. He sees a boy exiting the water. Malcolm! Malcolm! John frightens the boy. I thought you were someone else. John heads down the beach as lightning flashes. Interior convenience store, Venice Beach night. As rain pours outside, Malcolm picks up a package of Fig Newtons and walks to the register. The black mail store clerk, with the Omega sign branded on his shoulders, reads Upscale Magazine. Malcolm stares at the store clerk's branding. Side eyes don't buy you shit. Malcolm pulls Ray's $20 bill from his pocket. He looks at his phone number, then surrenders the bill. What else? Malcolm points at the pack of Marlboros. You got ID? Malcolm shakes his head no. The clerk slaps the cigarettes down on the counter like dominoes. Next time, bring your ID. Or your daddy. 
Ringing up for Fig Newtons and the cigarettes, the clerk slides, Malcolm has changed. Malcolm grabs his change, a pack of matches, and heads into the rain. Exterior pier, Venice Beach night. Wind, waves, and thunder create an unnerving roar. Huddled under the pier, Malcolm finishes his Fig Newtons. He removes the Marlboros and lights a match. Lightning a cigarette, lighting a cigarette, he coughs. Malcolm sucks hard on the cigarette, coaxing the ember to a f- uh, frenzied glow. Malcolm holds the tip to his arm. Pressing the fire into his flesh, he screams. Exterior pier, Venice Beach, daybreak. Malcolm sleeps in the fetal position. The fresh burn on his arms forms a crude X. A stray approaches. The dog sniffs, then licks Malcolm's fresh wound. Waking, Malcolm recoils in pain, sending the dog skittering down the beach. Malcolm cradles his arm. Walking to the water's edge, he stares at the angry Pacific. Exterior beach, Venice Beach, continuous. John spots Malcolm from a distance. Malcolm. John runs to Malcolm at the pier slash water's edge. Reaching Malcolm, John is stunned by the X branded into his arm. Who did this to you, Malcolm? Malcolm says nothing. John sees a pile of cigarette butts under the pier. He pieces it together. Why? Why? I lied about Reggie. I acted like I didn't know him. Breaking down. They burned him. I had to know what I'd done. I I had to know. Tears fill John's eyes as he scoops Malcolm up. I want to go home, John. John holds Malcolm tightly as Agent Miller walks toward them. Mr. Kennedy, I presume. John nods. Agent Miller smiles kindly at John and Malcolm. You're a hard act to follow. Exterior fishing pier parking lot, Beacon Hill, Florida, day. The gulf shimmers beneath the generous sun. Standing next to John's truck, Malcolm works his rabbit's foot as he stares at his high tops. John touches Malcolm's shoulder. You understand why you can't live with Jewel and me? Lying, Malcolm nods yes. Reggie's waiting. Looking down the pier, Malcolm sees Reggie fishing in the distance. I'll be here. John smiles knowingly as Malcolm departs. Exterior fishing pier day. Head down, Malcolm walks the pier as if, as if walking the green mile. Malcolm slows, nearing Reggie. Reggie's mother sees Malcolm approaching. She steps back to give the boy some privacy. Reggie faces Malcolm. Anger wells in Reggie's eye. Anger wells in Reggie's eyes, and shame wells in Malcolm's eyes. Malcolm tries in vain not to stare at the end, branded into Reggie's arm. Reggie pulls down his sleeve. I'm sorry, Reggie. Malcolm removes the bandage covering the X burned into his own arm. Who done that to you? <laughs> Some asshole. <laughs> Malcolm notices Reggie's slack fishing line. Get any bites? Reggie shrugs. Malcolm hands Reggie his rabbit's foot. This'll bring you luck. Montage. Malcolm and Reggie reconcile. Malcolm baits Reggie's hook. Reggie casts a short cast. Malcolm instructs Reggie. Reggie casts a long Malcolm cast, and both boys smile. Reggie battles a fish, and Malcolm cheers. Back to scene. Reggie proudly displays his modest catch. Ever catch one this big? <laughs> Not ever. Reggie returns his fish to the water, then returns Malcolm's rabbit foot. Malcolm refuses to accept it. <laughs> good luck gets as good from being shared. Exterior fishing pier day. Malcolm walks the pier to the parking lot with his head down. Halfway, he looks up and sees Ray, Grace, and Violet standing at the end of the pier. In disbelief, Malcolm stops. Ray nods yes to reassure Malcolm. Grace's smile gives way to tears. Squealing her excitement, Violet breaks free from her mother's arms and races down the pier to Malcolm. Damn, Malcolm! (laughs) Violet and Malcolm reunite in a hug. Ray and Grace join Violet and Malcolm. The family embraces with Malcolm in the center. As Malcolm's joy goes exponential, John climbs into his truck and drives away. Robert Johnson's kind-hearted woman blues fades up. Dissolved to exterior John and Jules' home, New Orleans, day. The Johnson song plays on the radio. On the foundation where John's shed stood, the nearly completed frame of a house under construction. John and Ray swing hammers in time with the music as they nail roof trusses into place. I got a kind-hearted woman do anything for me. I got a kind-hearted woman do anything for me. 
But these evil hearted women, man, they will not let me be. John smiles at Ray as the very pregnant Jewel exits a FEMA trailer parked next to her home to be. Carrying a tray with iced tea, Jewel looks, Jewel looks at John with the love of a woman, wife, and mother to be. John alters Johnson's lyrics as he serenades Jewel from a loft. I love my baby, my baby loves me. I love my baby, my baby, she loves me. Man, I really love that woman, can't stand to let her be. Jewel mouths, I love you. John and Ray descend a ladder and join Jewel. John takes Jewel in his arms, kissing her. Ray smiles at his friend's good fortune, and the Johnson song continues. Fade to black. The end. Um, what do you guys say we take five, get some water, and then resume back here in five minutes with the Q&A? Does that Great. Perfect. Awesome. That was a beautiful read, everyone. Cliff, we're so Thank excited you. to Thank pick you. your brain about this wonderful, wonderful script. For those watching live, stand by. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're back with the Unproduced Table Read. We just read Cliff Yost's beautiful script, Malcolm X and JFK, and we have him here in studio to talk about it. Cliff, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thank, thank you all um, for doing this. This script is so unbelievably special. Um, mm-hmm. It's different from anything else we've read in the show, and it's really our first time reading like a road movie, and I love road movies, so I think I want to talk, I guess, about that first. Why did you decide to write this not only as a psychological journey and a emotional journey but also a physical journey with these two characters the uh, as i started before you guys read the program i used to go every summer to uh, biloxi and gulfport and stay at a friend's house where there was just this slab where hurricane camille had taken the home and i was always just taken by you know how powerful that must have been mm-hmm. what what brought me to it more recently is that my wife and i spend half the year on a sailboat we keep the sailboat in Florida, so every year we drive the complete length of this of this movie. Wow! And I love the drive, and we take like a month to do it at a time. We have an RV, we have a little airstream, and what I'm always um, amazed by on this route is it's absolutely beautiful. So anyone from there or anybody who's seen this, it's gorgeous. But the 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 racism that's still going on. Is, is such the opposite. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm always like looking at the Gulf and blown away. And then you'll hear people talk. And, you know, they will use epithets. They will use the N-word. They will use these words in just common speech. And, and it's such a contrast of beauty to ugly. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. I wanted to, I hope I did well, I wanted to represent them both in the piece. Yeah. <clears throat> Absolutely. Well, it's hard as a screenwriter to paint the environments as well as you do so like i think for listening writers just in terms of like writing balanced but beautiful action that still manages to get out of the way of the dialogue that's so impressive there's like a line where you talk about alfalfa like blaring in the i don't know it's really beautiful yeah i want to touch on that too because you use a lot of um inanimate objects to convey the emotion of the scene you have the fish. Well, the fish is an inanimate, but um, it, uh, you know the trail behind it though is is filled mm-hmm. with dismay. You've got the spinach wilting with tension. How? Right. How did you do Where? this? Yeah. Now, that's my. Uh, I well, guess a more pointed question is is like um, why you use that tactic and, and it's so beautiful. Well, let me first say that I don't know that it's an effective tactic. <laughs> I I'm recently approached by a couple different uh, representatives. And I think I'm going to get representation, but I will tell you that they have been saying that I'm writing a bit like a novelist. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Here's what I'm trying to do, though. The gatekeeper, you know, the reader we all hear about, uh-huh. I want them to see it in their head. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that gatekeeper is a director 
or a, a DP or a, a, a production person. So I intentionally use the words, and, and I hope you could see it unfolding. If I have to write a pared-down version so I get out of the director's way, I'm happy to do it. But I, I love good description. I do too, and it's so... I'm funny because I'm the opposite. I'm reading a lot of scripts, obviously, for this show, but I get bored of stale action. And yeah, I mean, and it's just... More and more I've been hearing from executives, and like John August, I'm sure... He'll he'll say if you have a good story, it doesn't necessarily matter how you tell it. Um, but I, I guess there's mixed opinions on that. But the good news is, if you needed to pare down some of that poetic imagery, you, the story, the dialogue sells the story as well. But easier to take it team. back than to add it in for sure. Exactly. But I hope they don't. I mean, the thing is, when it comes down to it, what's seen on screen is, I guess, what the director paints anyway. But I've, I've always felt that somebody's going to take it and make it their own. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I want them to. Right. You know, I come with one POV on this. Right. And it's and it's mine. So like just hearing the way you would do certain voices, mm-hmm. I was like, wow, I never I never thought about that. Mm-hmm. Especially on John, you you were much more subtle on John, you know, than I than I anticipated. But I started to co- kind of lean into you mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, when you were doing it, and I'm like, wow, I was paying closer attention. Go yeah. ahead. I didn't mean to drone on. No, that. no, you great. did it all. Well, the coolest thing about sitting here, and I was so glad that I did, was I love how excited you got about this script. Like, mm-hmm. and we we all were excited about it. But when good parts would come up, he'd like nudge me and be like, <laughs> "I'm sorry." No, it was amazing because it's cool. You wrote characters. I'm sure you've been working on this for a very long time, and you wrote a story and characters that you're still interested in, yeah. which is one of the hardest parts as a writer to stay interested in your own work after you're working on it over and over yeah. again. And I think yeah. that really speaks to what you created here. That you're like. Yeah, yeah. You know, this, this part's coming up. So that was really cool for me. Thank That's you. That's cool. I mean, this uh, this script deserves to be excited about. Like, it's good. you should yes. be excited about this script. Thank you. Um, yeah. I have ahead, a, a, a question. Um, this is weird because I, ne- I would never admit to this um, unless it served a purpose further on, which I didn't read this whole script. Uh, I read like 85 pages of it and I fell asleep on my couch. <laughs> um, not because you were... It was boring, but because I was exhausted. And um, I didn't get to the part... When John goes and confronts his ex, uh, I almost started crying sitting here because this whole thing, I was raised without a dad. I thought this was very, very interesting. And so I want to talk to you about why you chose this and what that relates to you. And then also that scene specifically, because I've never, I mean, I didn't read it beforehand. So I've never had that on the show where I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh my God, keep it together, bro. Keep it together. (laughs) That was your first experience of that scene. That scene and and it like just the... The, the subtleties of it were beautiful. When I, de- when I decided that the piece was going to be about uh, racism, and that happened fairly early on in the, in the story, um, what I got a little more interested in, though, was when I knew that I wanted to create some kind of piercing mechanism to pierce through the racism, I, I was looking for that. And I didn't have to look too far. I've had an, a, a strange relationship with my father. And I felt that pierced through the, as, as tough as racism is, I felt that parenting um, theme actually came out of, the, out of the racism and actually overtakes it long enough to bring those two together. And that yeah. scene, if I talk too much, I'll be right there with you. Yeah, that, that scene actually, that line, um, tell me how, your name again? Kareem. Kareem. You spoke the line really lovely when he says, you know, I'm selling magazines because in that second he knows, John knows that it's over. That that he failed this boy of his completely. And 
what I really like about the scene, though, and, I, and tell me how you felt about it, it didn't fix John. John still left Malcolm. No, and it, and and I think you could probably relate. It doesn't shit doesn't get fixed like that. It doesn't. And too much time passes. What, and, do you and, remember the scene where John actually gets fixed? It's 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 a weird visual where he sees the the cart with the two with no that, kids. I, I put a star you next did. to it in my script. Yeah. I saw it. I looked at you because I thought that was such a great use of symbolism. Isn't it beautiful? I'm not Isn't it amazing? It, oh, I, no, it really. I was. don't feel that way, honestly. I, don't, I write really from the hip. I write largely intuitively, mm-hmm. and when I wrote that scene, I didn't really understand why there was nothing in the cart. But as I got deeper into the end, what I realized is that's what it took John, yeah, to turn him physically around. Mm-hmm. And and about this passionate about a story. If you have writers in here that don't act like this. Then they're missing the boat because, <laughs> other than my wife and sailing, I love my characters. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, it's it feels like the script is kind of almost divinely inspired. Like there's something very spiritual about I think what you've written. I so know. I get it. I get what you're saying. Um, let's talk about Malcolm and John because they are like the lifeblood of this script. Why did you choose to pair a 14 year old white kid with a black blues singer in his 30s? Like where does that come from? Because it's really special. Okay. So I was sitting in. Uh, Gulfport in this home a friend of my grandfather's and we ran out of we were having dinner and we ran out of ketchup and I wasn't the sharpest tool as a, a 10 year old so we were literally at the dinner table and, and my grandpa says you know go to the store and get us some ketchup and he gives me a dollar bill well I didn't understand there was a store like right around the corner so I rode 12 miles one way <laughs> to the next town <laughs> and I'm coming back with the ketchup and here come the police and it is a very large African American cop and he says, are you Cliff Yost? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, man, I got to get this ketchup back. I didn't know it was this far, <laughs> right? So he loaded my bike up and took me back. And my grandfather was furious. He's like, Jesus, there's a, there's a, a store five seconds around the corner. <laughs> but that image just stuck with me. And then I, am an, I just loved, um, you know, Huck Finn and, and uh, Tom Sawyer and everything. Yeah. And I know that a lot of that is even considered uh, racist writing, because our point of view as a, as a country has changed so much. But I wanted to explore that again. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's why I brought John and Malcolm side by side. Right. And they're, in, in my eyes, they're equally flawed. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. It takes John to the end in, in that bar scene where we see his racism finally show itself. But he's just, he was just done at that point. Right. Um, but I like the two flawed people, and they were just flawed together. Right. Well, you didn't. Well, I'm so glad, but you didn't write them as like one's a savior. No, mm. they're both broken people who needed each other. Yes. Like it's this friendship, um, and like yeah, I just I love a good road movie, and like I love a good buddy movie, and this is such an interesting take on that. I think does it does it feel genuine? And I'm not fishing for compliments, but no, it, it does leads. it feel genuine to you? If yeah. I, if, if I was gonna say something, I'm I'm from Texas, and one thing one of the things I loved about the script is. As you read through it, you feel the racism, you feel the hatred that goes on, but you don't... And although it's modern day, you keep true to what's really going on in the mm-hmm. South and how it really is. You don't try to sugarcoat it to make people feel as though things have really progressed, which it hasn't, because I'm from there, and it's still the same You still feel tone. it. Yeah. yeah. So, and that's something I really appreciated about it, because at some point, you'll feel like, what, what year are we in? Then you'd hear the Alicia Keys. Yeah. Like, okay, right. here we are. Yeah. And yeah. it's still going on. It kind of gives you a, a gentle reminder, and it kind of sucks, but... 
you, it's real. It is something that I didn't realize either until I heard this is um, Malcolm doesn't talk much. No. Yeah. No. Uh, and I and and you did a beautiful job, but I realized so much of what you are and who you are is is this visceral response. Everything mm-hmm. is just physical, and the the fishing and the riding and the and the batting and everything. And I realized, oh my God, he doesn't talk that much. Mm-hmm. Sidebar. Yeah. yeah. Well, he's kind of the Alice, <clears throat> like in the Alice in Wonderland thing, where it's this coming of age story for him, and he's all of a sudden thrown into this whirlwind of growing up and kind of coming of age. And it's cool because it happens for both of the characters. It's just really, I think, very special. Yeah, and I think it that's... Feels, oh, no, sorry, no, go ahead, Tim. I think that's one thing that I, that I do love about the character of Malcolm is that he doesn't talk so much. It's because he's looking at all of his surroundings and taking it all in and then forming his own opinions rather than listening to the opinions of everybody else who has such loud opinions. Um, so I like the fact that Malcolm doesn't talk that much um, through the script. Yeah. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, and I was going to say, to speak on the other end of, like, he, you didn't sugarcoat stuff. You also didn't just push those racist buttons that are thrown in movies so often to make an audience feel a certain way. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, you did this very um, authentically, and it was very genuine, and, like, you feel it all the way throughout without feeling uncomfortable over And especially as, like, a white writer, I thought it was very interesting for you to be sitting in here with all of us in, in like, Mike reading. Um, but it was ne- there was never a moment of discomfort because it was so... It was just true. You know what I mean? And I, and I think that that's like a very great thing that you you have in this script is that the racism and it doesn't take over in a negative. You know what I mean? It's just there and it's, it reminds us. Yeah. A blacklist reviewer used the word fun in the script. <laughs> and no, seriously. And when I first saw that review, I was like, it, I was taken aback. And at first I would think I was a little insulted. Uh-huh. And, th- and then I kind of... When you do step back, you know, there is a a context to it. I mean, you you caught a lot of that in John. I didn't realize that John has a really nice air to him. He's playful. Mm -hmm. A playful, Playful. yeah, he's playful. Like, you know, no, I'm not worried about stealing stuff. I'm worried about people leaving these stuff, you know. And and in fact, it plays really nicely because Malcolm is is more sensitive Mm -hmm. than than John is. Mm -hmm. Um, So... I, 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 I just felt like to, to be around the 14-year-old white boy, although being from, you know, being from the South, John, is you would have to have a sense of, immature, not immaturity, but like a sense of uh, gentleness to yourself. Playfulness. Not, not so yeah. Playfulness, not so serious, because if you were serious all the time, you'd want to get this kid away from you as soon as possible. You wouldn't want right. to help. So. <laughs> I just, I, did anybody wonder why John stopped that truck on the highway? Did, did, did that? Did that? I actually did because I, I I literally just got the script. You did, yeah. Like, so I didn't. <laughs> I had no. I like we had someone through drop, it. Yeah. So. so I was trying to like familiarize. So it was all very new to it me was. in reading it. Nice so. job, Courtney. By the way. Uh, yeah. 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 But that being said, I, I had a point. Um, <laughs> no, it, what what it made me think of when you were just speaking is that there's an interesting sort of you captured the contradiction of the South very well. And I'm originally from Atlanta, families in South Georgia, like, but I also went to school in Rochester, New York and went to Chicago. And so I sort of get to go back and I spend a lot of time still in like down South of Georgia, like Macon, Georgia area. And the energy of the characters that you built was very indicative of how we've always coexisted in the South and you exist in a space where you know it's not right, and this this poverty, the the because the white poor people, the black poor people, like and how they like they've always existed and they continue mm-hmm. to exist in the same space. And there's almost a certain um, like why would he help this white kid and that right. kind of thing? Mm-hmm. But somehow they continue to do that 
helpful to each other, but simultaneously are hating each other and living in these two separate worlds and want to stay segregated and things like that. So it's interesting to me how you were able to craft those characters around each other and it felt like you were like it felt real it felt there it felt very much like what we live in as a country and just like he was saying earlier that you know you don't know if this is 1906 or if it's 2006 Mm -hmm. and the reality is is that that still exists in the south now like when you go if i drive to my great-grandmother's house you would think it's 1936 and but then you know you drive a few miles north and it's like the metropolis and all of that so i just found it fascinating that that i and i don't even know how to explain it at this point that's why i'm sitting here like let me like actually think about what i'm trying to say (laughs) because some kind of way like i don't and i don't know where sort of your female characters um where your inspiration for a lot of them came from and that kind of thing but i feel like you did a beautiful job crafting the women and sort of they don't speak much or often and they say a lot born of women raised of women. <laughs> yeah. I, had, I had uh obviously a mother and a father but i had three sisters mm-hmm. and i i gotta say growing up i was never one of those boys who didn't like his sisters it's it's like i loved my sisters and i i loved my mom and i i didn't realize this but did you read my bio are we okay mm-hmm. to go into that yeah let's do it this is the reality okay i wrote this piece in roughly 2008 and i shelved it because after i was done with it i thought you know this is largely for me Mm -hmm. this is something i'm wanting to understand i'm working through this was this spoke to me so i shelved it and um i shelved it after after it finished it was a finalist in a major contest page awards and it finished top 10 percent in nickel and i shelved it because i thought it wasn't relevant Mm. okay but about 16 months ago I woke up one morning and literally I, I asked myself, I'm like, oh my God, where, what country, what year am I in 1936? What you just said, where am I? And my wife had always loved this and I pulled it down and I hadn't read it since. And I read it and I was just like, oh my God, it's, I, I feel almost like it was supposed to come at this point. So I, I've been writing in obscurity for years and I threw it up. The only piece I've thrown up, I threw it up on blacklist. Yeah. And boom, here and here we are. So. Well, what's crazy to me? Do you know the story of Mark Twain's publication of Huck Finn? I do not. It's the same thing. He wrote the manuscript, didn't write the last chapter, and put it in his desk, and then brought it out ten years later and got it published. Seriously. Yeah. It's crazy. And I, it just it just blows my mind that you you didn't think that this was relevant because I read this script and I not only felt an attachment to Malcolm on a personal level but I feel like every character in here somebody now can just see something of themselves in um, and I felt like the race, just putting the racial stuff aside these characters on a personal level um, their vulnerabilities and their and their fears <clears throat> but being afraid to show their fears mm-hmm. is everything that everybody deals with on a daily basis right it's it's interesting I've been I've been learning lately I have a, uh, a nephew and he's gay and um, it's been an awesome experience to learn from him. But I will tell you that uh, when I was growing up and I've always been a, a musician or a writer or whatever, I felt I've been a little bit hesitant to come out. For instance, I love writing women. Hmm. Okay. Can't tell you why, but I just enjoy it. Um, I was a, <laughs> I quit a, a pretty successful career in TV radio making tv and radio ads mm-hmm. to teach women's bicycling for seven years <laughs> god's honest truth yes. 
My it, hero. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. I did. I had, we had hundreds of clients. It was called Women Writing Well. I, I taught women cycling, but I'll tell you, I'm the one that got the lesson. Yeah. Because I wasn't, this was before Women Writing Well. And then I finished that, and then, and then I came back to this. And what I realized was like, oh, my God, I feel so much safer to look at um, men, women, uh, transgender, different points of view, different races. And, and I'm getting emboldened right. by the movement, like transgender movement. I'm getting emboldened to say, you know what? I wrote a piece about a, uh, largely about a black person, or I wrote a piece about a woman, and I'm okay to do that because I share the same feelings, mm-hmm. yeah. right? My genitalia aside, skin color aside, I can feel just like you, mm-hmm. right? Or just like you just because I'm a human being. And I'm, I'm stoked right now. It's like I know this is time that I get to, to share my stories now. It's, it's, sorry, it's so funny that you brought up transgender because this entire script reminded me of that movie Transamerica, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> I was wondering if that was an influence at all. I, I know... I see things and I don't understand them. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty s- stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, you're pretty dumb. <laughs> you know. And and what I what it takes me is I process things subconsciously. Mm-hmm. Like my wife will know because for weeks I won't sleep. Yeah. And she's like, "What are you working on?" And I'm like, "I'm working on a I'm working on a character. I'm working on a, a relationship." And what happens is those things start to surface. Yeah. And and the reason I write from the hip is I've learned like I'm. I have structure, I've studied all those books, but the story, right, the thing that doesn't depend on the words, right. but the story, it just comes. Uh-huh. And if I don't write it down, I get, I'm get i a miserable asshole, you know, it's like, <laughs> I, I just have to write it. Yeah, yeah. you're a writer. <laughs> long, long story short, that's what you're... Sorry. So no, 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 it's great. I'm excited yeah. to... I want to... I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I want like, to awesome. sit down and have coffee with you because I was raised <laughs> by a single mother and three sisters as well. And the way that you write women, every scene, they're the strongest um, part of the scene. Uh-huh. Always. Throughout the whole script, every time that anyone calls back to a woman, whenever they're there, that's the strongest part of the scene or the interaction, the conversation. And that's very true. You know that. We were raised by women. We know that we just kind of follow and we they, they know what's going on. So... I, I just want to compliment you on that, and then I wanted to ask you about um, the scene of when uh, Malcolm's walking around Charles' house. Mm-hmm. And I want to I just since everything else in our lives are very similar. Apparently, did you have a, a, a moment like that in your life? Because I have a very similar moment of seeing a Facebook post of my dad and his wife and my two brothers that I've oh. never met, yeah. and it's the same damn thing where you look at it and you're just like, "Holy shit." So you that scene really resonated with you? That scene is literally my life. Is it? But it was in the internet instead of in person. What the, when I decided to go from racism to parenting and something that came out at the very end and I didn't plan this, but the last thing was something even more subtle and it was the classism. Mm-hmm. And and to me that was the final what finally had to hit Malcolm was simply being hated for what you had or didn't have. Mm-hmm. So I don't understand what it's to be, um, I'm, well, I'm learning to be a minority in my own country. Great, right? It's coming. <laughs> but that scene to me was so important because he absolutely had to, to be overtaken by where I see America going in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think more and more, like if you've spent time in the South, this California thing that that's going on, there's just no way to comprehend it. Yeah, you know, is is that how your experience? I mean, did your family have so much more? 
Um, it was really weird, the picture that I did see, because it was at uh, one of their graduations from, like, a very good, prestigious school. And it was just one of those things, like, um, I was a theater kid, I got a theater scholarship, and, and I ended up not graduating due to my own choices. And then uh, to look at that picture, it was like, me and my mom and my sisters and me at, like, not graduating. Then it's, like, him and his wife and his sons at their, I think it was UCLA or Berkeley or something like mm-hmm. that, in their suits, in their dresses, like, at their graduation. It was just such a different life. Yeah. You know what I mean? And to look at that was just such a trip. And the way that you put this was was basically the same damn thing. They might as well have been in Greece. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I was, We yeah. do have a lot of... It sounds like we've had a lot of similar experiences. Yeah. And, and the, the script, you really embody it perfectly. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, the Charles stuff is hard to read. I, it's, I mean, it's so true, and it's. Oh yeah, you want to sock him in the face, Jeff? You, yeah. you look like you're you're very handsome. You look like Charles. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm way better than he is. I, <laughs> I have toyed around with law school though, and now I feel like I have to reject all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I it's so true, and I'm so glad you chose to write that way, especially with the classism stuff you're talking about. It really both highlights and undercuts all the racial tensions when you see two white family members still. You're just really, you're importantly highlighting that bigotry isn't always just related to color. And I'm really glad you did that, but it's hard to read. Like, why did you choose to make your third act the third act that it is? Specifically the... the, the Yeah, I guess the Charles stuff, specifically. Um, Getting to make this journey every year, my wife and I literally go back and forth and and i don't know where the how this country ever got together seriously <laughs> yeah. because no wonder the south wanted to secede the mm-hmm. south is its own you're, you're from there i'm not but the south is its own thing the south has no more in common with with beverly hills um than you know like what's going on in russia and, and or what's going on in syria and these things these these factions kind of at each other and i i wanted the story world to completely exit where it started and I wanted Malcolm to be in something so foreign that it would it would virtually strip him naked even right up to the end he's still what he's he's still clinging to that damn just like I don't know do you guys do this my defenses are my defenses and you damn well better stay away from them right and he just clings to that but he finally gets put in a thing that's so overwhelming and revealing it has to come down. Yeah, it breaks him. It breaks him. And I didn't want it to feel manipulated. I don't live out here. I don't live in Beverly Hills, but, but I have friends, and I know that that's how they live. Yeah. And I'm more middle class, but even I go into that, and I'm like, man, this is so not me. <laughs> well, it's, that's what I love is, like, I feel like sometimes California, the, you're identifying all of the paradoxes that Courtney was talking about, mm-hmm. or the contradictions, and California pretends that it's the most in-touch, progressive, <laughs> empathetic um, like pocket of the country, but I think we miss a lot oh, sometimes. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And you get that with Charles. <laughs> I get that coming in from New Mexico. Yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, you guys are the beautiful people and you have all the great policies, but when you dig in, mm-hmm. and by the way, I love Californians. I yeah. Mean, I do. Are any of us from California originally? No. no. Anybody? No. no. Well, actually, I was born here. I moved when I was two, so that doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't count. She's offended. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She's bought Roxy so fast. <laughs> Um, but you're not afraid. You really dive in. I think this script is all about contradiction because I think yeah. you really dive into every... You don't shy from the complications of both the geographical and the emotional relationships that you kind of really highlight in this piece. So I applaud you for that because I think as a writer, it's kind of scary to do that. 
because it's not clean, you know? I don't... I don't have a lot to lose as, <laughs> right. because I'm I haven't had a piece made yet. Yeah. yeah. But I will tell you um, the I'll brag a little bit. The first movie I ever wrote won second place at the Page Awards. Wow. It's not because I'm so great. It, again, it's because I go for that. Mm-hmm. I love in human beings. Like if there's a person that I like and love, you can bet that their light and their dark is at war with each other. Mm. And I hope that the, 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 the goodness is winning. But how boring are people and characters, you know, that are skewed one way or the other. Yeah. yeah. So I love like, I like to look at myself. I try to self-analyze it. It, has a, it doesn't help. But <laughs> I look at those factions constantly. Like, do you ever notice your mouth wants to say something immediately? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, so part of my character exploration is just, well, what is that tied to that wants to do that? Like, Mm. criticize me right now and I'll knock you out. Yeah. Now, let me sit with it for a day. And I do. I come back and I'm like, man, you were you. This rewrite. Did I not tell you, Jeff? I said I got some notes from Blacklist. Uh Right. I went on the war path, my poor wife. (laughs) But within about a day, I sat and rewrote this for two weeks because that second act needed work. Um, but I love the light and the dark in each of us, and I just want to go into it, and I want to understand it better. And I have this this naive notion that if we did that, and we we were to talk about it and have discussions, that maybe something would get better. And that's my that's my fantasy. Wow, you know? we were honest. Yeah, I love those tortured heroes that are always they're just real. We're always struggling with things in our everyday life. Yeah. Do you? have any interest in telling us what those notes were or do you not want to no, share I'm, that? No, I'm happy to share. Um, I tend to I tend to kind of look away from structure a little bit in pursuit of character and relationship. So what happened was, for one thing, this is not an action piece. Mm-hmm. Did any of you all read, feel it was an action piece? Mm-mm. My pieces tend to have action that's organic to the plot and I think they got to the second act and when it really got into the family drama mm-hmm. they felt it slowed too much yeah and and you know what it did i i got a little heavy with the ray um and by the way i will tell you i love ray and, love and ray. grace yeah. and violet right yeah. yeah and they're great they are great and if you don't spend the time there if i took a chance to spend time there because the ending sucks and it's it's pollyanna that he would have this family if that didn't occur. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I tend to get a little bit um, lost in structure sometimes because I'm so devoted to the character. Mm-hmm. But here's what I think. I can fix structure pretty easily, but it's hard to fix broken character. Yeah. You know? Right. So I've, you have to, as a writer, you have to like bleed on the page first, yes. and then you can clean it up yeah. later. But yeah. <laughs> or, what you do. or not, just let the character, you know, just leave the characters exposed. Right. Yeah. Um, and the time spent at the Hoffman farm felt like perfect. Yeah. Now. It you, felt like it yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. At least to me, yeah. It felt it's my like favorite just chapter. The right yeah. amount. You yeah. guys, it is. It's my favorite chapter of the movie. Yeah. And see, I don't mind the notes. I, in fact, whoever blacklisted, whoever read my notes, thank you. Yeah. Wherever yeah. the camera is. The notes were excellent, yeah. okay? Because they largely were about the second act. Jeff, did you read the first? Did you read the first script? Before? Quickly, I will say I read this one more closely than I you did, did at first. Yeah, it was subtle, but I shortened it. Mm-hmm. I, I got those scenes just right to the point for Ray and Grace. Um, but uh, I, structure, I tend to, <clears throat> I, I tend to, you know, mess around a little bit. But dialogue, 
I love dialogue. Yeah. yeah. Well, road <laughs> movies can break the rules. I don't know if you've seen Into the Wild before. Oh, yeah. This so kind good. of feels like that a little bit. Does it? Yeah, in a great way. It's one of my favorite movies, but I wouldn't say that that movie really finds itself beholden to like a really page-clean three-act structure. I don't think so at and all. And the no. thing is, when a narrative... This is a three-act script, because that's what happens. It's like Charlie Kaufman talks about this, where like he'll write his movie, and then it turns out it ended up being three acts, because... It's just like that's how stories shape themselves. Right. So it's like the chicken or the egg thing, but I think this, I wouldn't change a thing. Like, I think it tells its story the way it needs to be told. I didn't write it as three, I don't write in acts. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I write in um, in little segments. Mm-hmm. And that's how I write, and that somebody saw it that way. I mean, how can we not hear 12 tone? We're Western society, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. You hear 12, we don't hear 27 or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that doesn't bother me, and I know that that's a way for people to relate to the piece. Yeah. But I love the flow and just listening to it now, I didn't think that the, uh, that the part with that family was too long um, at all. So, so I always ask this question after the table read, is there anything that you, you liked, you didn't like, you want to change that anything that just jumped out to you? Honestly, I felt some of my writing was a little flowery. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I complimented you on. No, but it, and and really, that's in the um, that's in the uh, performance of it live. Um, that was really the only the only thing that bugged me. I'm really attentive to to dialogue, and you guys changed a few things, and it was interesting because I didn't have that knee jerk reaction of. Don't change my shit. Uh-huh. <laughs> it, it was more like, oh, that's that's like a natural intonation. That's a natural. Mm-hmm. You said sheriff after um, oh, every right. time virtually you said sheriff. Because mm-hmm. I was just thinking of a, a guy in that position that's been in jail that's dealt with his guys. That's right. Just, even though I fucking hate you, here's your respect. That's yeah. indeed, and you nailed it. And I'm like, you know, oh well, I'll you, I'll be doing a quick rewrite. <laughs> yes, because Christ. it is. It no. was jamming it to him. So I that was that was great. No, I I know it's. You know, a writer who doesn't love his piece does, or her piece doesn't deserve to get that piece done. Yeah, it, it's I, not done yet. Totally. Yeah, it's. I love everything that I write. I love. It doesn't mean everything's good. I get that, mm-hmm. but it's not because I don't love it and I don't commit fully. So. Yeah. Any other questions from the panel? Um, Shoot. I just think it's also also awesome how um, Malcolm X and JFK kind of um, are the characters, like Ma- Malcolm. Is violent, aggressive in nature, and knows what he kind of, kind of wants what he wants, and he's aggressive in nature, such as Malcolm X was early on, and JFK, he had a, a kind of a sketchy past, but also he's just doing the right thing, but looked at as so he's doing an amazing thing, but he, in, in all actuality, he's just doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, I, the the title it always starts with the title, and it was funny. I was pitching a couple of weeks ago, and the producer shut me down almost immediately, and didn't want to hear the rest of it because she said. <laughs> She goes, you deceived me, and you you disappointed me with your title. Huh. <laughs> Welcome to Hollywood. I'm like, I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> she, she didn't even let me get into the pitch no, and about how bad. the juxtaposition occurred. So I see that's a double edged sword. But yeah. I just I just love what it. It's the representative of what's inside. Mm-hmm. I hope somebody can get to the inside eventually. Mm-hmm. That's her loss. That's crazy. Yeah. 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 Um, well, do you have any questions for us, Cliff, before? I, I, the only question I've had is how did you, how did you find the script? Did you? I found it through the blacklist. You did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I, I look at Nickel winning lists too. So whenever I see a title I recognize from the blacklist, 
that I've seen before on a Nicholas. I'm yeah. definitely interested. Okay. Um, the other thing was I wanted a uh, American historical biopic. So I was like, great. <laughs> then I read it. And I liked it so much more. But I think That's this producer great. is crazy because a lot of people would maybe go see this movie thinking mm-hmm. it's something else. Yeah. If anything, yeah. the title's more of a sell than Alfalfa in the Breeze would have been. You know what I mean? Like, so I think it's a great. Was title. that the original title? No, I just made. Oh, it. <laughs> no, I was like, stick, with this. stick with this. This is I better. Just, so many. They talk I about in Hollywood all the time how like a title can really actually break a box office, mm. and I would imagine that a title like this would kill because people, people go be into like, it. What? Yeah. 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 So I I love it. And but. you also have to keep in mind you can't please everybody. Like, right. Everybody's right. always gonna be like, oh, I don't like the title, or yeah. no matter what you change it to. So I love the title personally. I remember when Jeff sent us a script, I was like, I'm reading Malcolm X. Yeah, same. <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, I, was I was like, like what is this? how am I, what? No, that's, I was like, is that a, am I supposed to be reading Jeff? I'm confused. And then I read it and I was like, I see. Yeah. <laughs> and it's still honored for me. Like, I know you just said you were looking for American history biopic, perhaps, yeah. in situation. It is very much an American history yes. a contemporary. person story. Yeah. Like, it is. Yeah. It's so American. With the, between the music <laughs> alone, like the music alone is, is a lesson yeah. in yeah. <laughs> the history of blues music mm-hmm. in this country. So, I, I mean, I get you major kudos for yeah. capturing that and bringing that to life. I love what you did. I know it's a small part, but the the teacher that has the cancer. Yeah. And, oh. Yes. Uh, <laughs> when she says your luck run, you know, eventually our luck runs out. You did lovely on that. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yeah. I was actually going to bring that up because um, uh, Andrew had brought up, you know, the strong women, um, you know, theme that you have throughout the entire script and just Elizabeth in general is just this short, very short part. Mm-hmm. But it's this black woman who has cancer and she's still teaching she's still trying to inspire mm-hmm. these students and that's what I got from that script and and just her relationship with Malcolm in general I just feel like you're setting it off the bat that Malcolm doesn't really have a, a hatred for race he's just scared of what could happen or, or what has happened and um, I think that all of these people are trying to help him and he recognizes that but he's still scared of it and just to sure. echo that, the fact that she's singing <laughs> in the classroom and that, mm-hmm. it, you, and that's part of how you sort of like built this world. Like I grew up with these women like just singing mm-hmm. gospel music in the morning and like just getting dressed or just singing like when you go to New Orleans and you visit family, and they, like the music of the people actually singing, not just, you know, listening to the records that's and that right. thing. It's a mm-hmm. big deal because that is in, that's literally in the soil in yeah. the South. Mm-hmm. Like that's what we grew up with. That's what we hear. Like it's just, I love that you did that and appreciate it so much. Jeff, did you notice in the script when you were reading, there's only one place where I have where the, where the people are not singing with it, and we mm-hmm. and nobody knew what to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah, we just well, I, it. I, I, I should have done a better <laughs> job explicitly explaining our music cues, but I, I think I had it, like, maybe mismarked in my rundown, Oh, you did? Yeah. <laughs> I intentionally left that that part Johnson to, yeah I wanted Robert Johnson just for a little bit to mm-hmm. sing by himself yeah and it's when they were in that truck and they were just driving and mm-hmm. that's when John yeah. for the first time starts to starts to feel that with with Malcolm and right small point but well I, it's cool music is a part of the lifeblood of this script in such a cool way and I I also love that um, I do think we're getting close on time, everyone. But Cliff, I cannot thank you enough for writing this. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's like in the, I mean this in the best way, but you bled on the page for this, and it's so clear. And it's I really hope we can see it made, and thank we'll you. do everything we can. 
Yeah. Um, thank each of you for, for making this happen. This is really lovely. Good. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, well, just so you guys know, these scripts came to us heavily discounted from ARA Printing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Have you been to ARA before? I have not, but it's I will excellent. go now. No, you need it's to. amazing. It's amazing. They're, on, they're in Burbank, so they're right down the road on Magnolia Boulevard. Um, these, even without the discount, cost like three bucks for spiral-bound features. And we do have a discount which is table read. If you go into the store with the promo code table read, you'll get 10% off your order. Great. So that's ARA printing on Magnolia Boulevard. They're the best print shop in town. Yes, they are. Um, if you guys like today's episode, I'd recommend two. Um, the first one I'd recommend is if you're interested in kind of the flavor of the South, we read a really strange, interesting procedural called the Hunter and the Mystic mm. that I think captures some of the same kind of um, uh, contradictions that exist in uh, the South. And we also read a script interested in kind of the xenophobic elements of this episode called America about Russian Jewish immigrants in the 80s. And I think it has an equally interested um, approach to kind of hatred, but also love in this country. So, and Company Town, too. And be, Company Town. Really yeah, good. you're definitely yeah. Episode five we wrote about it's very racially driven and it's also very American. So mm-hmm. any of those three episodes, I think, would pair nicely with this one. Uh, but in the meantime, guys, this has been the Unproduced Table Read. Thanks for sticking around. Um, if you guys want to find us online, you can do so at the Popcorn Talk Network. If you want to find me online, you can do so at Jeffrey C. Graham, and we'll see you next week. How about the rest of you guys? You guys can find me at I am Timothy Mike on all, all social media platforms. You guys can find me at Kareem3K on all social media platforms. I'm everywhere at Stuart Starlet. Uh, you can find me at Andrew Guy. I'm everywhere at Roxy Stryer. And Cliff, take a minute and let us know what we can expect from you, anything else you're working on, and where producers can find you to buy this script. <laughs> right now? Right now. <laughs> awesome. Right now. Yeah. Um, my first piece that took second in the Page Award is called Like Yo-Yo. Cool. It's a, a beautiful coming-age piece of a young woman. Um, and I just finished my first uh, cable pilot um, that I'm actually getting some interest in already called Meet and render cool Mm -hmm. awesome render so but i have about six or seven finished products great and i'm ready to go and where's the best place to reach you um you can reach me at at clifford d yost great that's a good place um also my email address go for it okay (laughs) um so if you want well i don't i don't need to share your email on the air unless yeah there you go i did Fair enough. Um, Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us today. Again, my name is Jeff Graham, and we'll see you next week here on The Unproduced Table Read. Thanks. Thanks, Cliff. Bye, guys. Phil Spitek, Christian Harloff, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network. We would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.